Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things Kings of War. as they delve into the world of Mantica and bring you in-depth coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge 2.0. I'm Jeremy Wall. I'm Steve Hildry. I'm Mark Zelensky. I'm Alex Goose. And I'm Rob Phaneuf. And as Jeremy just alluded to, Countercharge 2.0. So those that may recall back in 2015 when second edition dropped, we made some changes to the show. We kind of dropped all the other Mantic games and went Kings of War exclusive. And with third edition hitting the horizon, we figured, hey, it's time to up and change and adapt again. And this time we've added two new hosts, and we think five hosts are always better than one. And I think the new hosts are going to be able to expand our international coverage. So let's start off by introducing Steve and Alex to the world. Alex, why don't you start us off? Hi, I'm Alex Coos. I'm a Kings of War gamer based out of Hamilton, Ontario, up in Canada. I'm the TO of the King Beyond the Wall tournament and here as well. I started playing Kings of War probably about just at the beginning of second edition. You can hear all about my gaming history in my uh, introduction interview Rob did for uh, the Community Spotlight series. Just excited to be part of the team and to help grow the community in Canada and around the world. Thanks. And let's toss it over to Steve. Hey, I think everyone's heard quite an annoying amount from me of late on the podcast, but I'm Steve Hildrew. I live here in the Midlands in the UK. I am a Kings of War gamer. I don't play any other games at the minute because I'm quite lazy. Um, And yeah, I'm just really excited, super excited, still excited to be part of Counter Charge, the voice of the Kings of War community. Uh, bringing some of that UK vibe and getting over to Mantic a little bit more and getting some of the hot steaming information that we need to keep this uh, community vibrant. So in this episode, we're going to do a deep dive into third edition. But before we really get into the tasty, uh, hot and steamy, as Steve said, uh, third edition info, we're going to talk a little bit about first what our plans are for the general third edition release. Um, So, Rob, what do you guys got going on over in your neck of the woods? We've started a Slow Grow League on Wednesday nights, and this Wednesday we will be running uh, 300-point games on 4x4 tables, um, probably using some of the new scenarios that we're going to talk about today. Um, and then on Saturday the 26th, we're going to have a you know kind of a release party because um, we're fingers crossed the books will arrive by then for sure. And you know we're just going to set up a bunch of tables and we're just going to play some third edition and get all the players here locally up to speed with the rules changes and just you know build on that excitement. Cool. Um, well, we, what we got going on over here is November 10th. We are running a one day, and I, I say tournament in air quotes. It's going to be just pretty much a, a third edition get together game day, but within sort of a tournament environment. And then there's B3 games. It's, it's really proxy friendly, which I think is a good idea. Um, when you're looking at running third edition, uh, you know, we're always open to proxies anyway, but I made it a point just to let people know that proxies are okay because everyone's going to be trying out new toys, new lists, new builds. So we're going to have that fun event at Heretic Games in San Bruno, a little third edition uh, hangout and play. Also, um, 
third edition release show wise, you know, a lot of people, and we'll cover them more later in the show, Rob, but people uh, put some questions in on the Facebook page. And one sort of narrative is uh, uh, going over list changes. And, you know, we've been uh, over the years have done a lot of army reviews, list builder studios, you know, really looked at army design. So we do have plans to do initial impression snapshot army review appendixes going over all of the new third edition army lists so those episodes we're hope hoping to get them out rapid fire and in them we'll be looking at possible builds what's changed you know a little bit more to you know not quite as in-depth as a full army review but more looking at the army from the through the lens of third edition yeah so that's what we got going on what about you mark what's on your uh third edition agenda well, I am very, very excited because, well, Colin quit Anime Club so we can get our Friday night games back, So, which is very nice. Uh, he's kind of excited about it, which I'm excited about. So, But uh, we're going to be looking at building the two-player starter kit uh, set first, and I want to try to take the game and view it from the eyes of a new player. And one of the reasons is because I'm hoping to take that two-player starter kit up to the hobby shop and... Uh, you know, we'll try to play some games in public. I know that that's shocking, but that's what we're going to try to do. And um, also, I'm just trying to catch that first edition magic again. You know, when I got that very first starter set and cracked it open and we were playing on the camper table. You know, second edition hit. I was really into the game at that point. But, uh, you know, there's some uh, changes in this one. Uh, a little bit more significant, I think, between the conversion between first and second. So I'm trying to treat it as a new game. And uh, in addition to that, we got tons of fluff. So the Narrative Workshop crew is just salivating at the opportunity to, uh, you know, dive deeply into the fluff. And, you know, we've got more novels coming. So I'm just very, very, very excited about this third edition release. And I know, Steve, uh, we mentioned it on the show before. Uh, if you haven't, definitely go check out Steve's Death by Dragons YouTube channel. Not only does he do great uh, battle reports, but he's sort of taken up the mantle of Kyle's weekly update. Uh, and he's put a couple of those out, so make sure you check those videos. But, Steve, do you have anything on the docket for Death by Dragons for 3rd Edition coming up? Yeah, so... Um, to celebrate third, we've already had one third edition battle report, which Mantic, who I am forever grateful for, allowed me to to release as a kind of a world premiere, uh, which was pretty popular, which is when I went up and played Elliot, um, Elliot Morris of Northern Kings fame. But I'm uh, going over to Mantic on Monday morning when they finished their weekend rush of shipping to play uh, John Fox of um, uh, Four Foot Snake fame. So we're going to do a little recording of a third edition battle report. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. That's really cool. The guys from Northern Kings are running a third edition game day up in Leeds. Uh, that's on the 23rd of November. And then the first third edition uh, tournament is already in the diary. That's the 1st of December, which is down at Worcester War Games. Uh, so I'm, I've re- re- secured the requisite wife forms and I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the first uh, third edition tournament in the UK, which is on the 1st of December. So I'm really, really super excited about that. The, I love it. The uh, uh, release of liability wife form. I hereby give you permission to go away for the day and not yell at you. Basically, is that what's in that form? It's just a, a balance of uh, what childcare duties will I do in response to dumping our three-year-old on her for a whole day without any kind of break. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, makes sense. Um, what about you, Alex? What do you guys uh, got going on north of the border for third? So we'll be running demo days over the next few weeks at Black Knight Games, and they have a formal like demo day weekend uh, in November. And the I think it's the 23rd and 24th, where all different game systems kind of just set up, you know, 
stalls of tables so you, people can come in and like try different games. So we'll, we'll be running some 500, 600 point games for demo there. As well, I'll be going down with a couple of the Hamilton guys to the mini wargaming bunker <clears throat> to do a demo games there as well. We're trying to grow the Southern Ontario scene and try to get a bit of a scene going at, at the mini wargaming bunker so that we can do some battle reports through them as well. And then in December, the, our first one day third edition tournament will be just before Christmas. You know, I think what I'm hearing from you guys is really what we're hearing from around the community, right? Is that people are excited for third. People are getting their game days uh, set up. They're doing stuff on YouTube. Uh, it's a really excited time. And what we are excited over, right, is the rule book itself. So let's first just kind of go around the horn and let's do some kind of what is everyone's initial impression. Like you you open the book, you take a look. You know, I think first off the docket, right, it's huge. I mean, it's a massive, massive, massive text. Absolutely. And I think my initial impression is it seems much more professional. The graphic design is spot on. Um, I, I really enjoyed the artwork. It looked like there was lots of artwork and photographs taken specifically for this book. In the past, sometimes it just looked like they had photographs laying around they just reused or concept art they just reused. This one looks like everything was done intentionally, which – you know, makes for a much more professional, polished book. You know, from my point of view, I think what they've tried to do is they've made it beautiful and it really is just a gorgeous um, document, but they've tried to make it uh, as clear as possible. They've taken that feedback that perhaps the original book wasn't as clear and the endless, endless rules questions. And they've really tried incredibly hard to make it a lot clearer. So there's a lot more diagrams in there to illustrate things. And even in the army sections where they've included a, a full double page of unit examples. So you don't have to say, what, is, what could this unit look like? They've said, here's the Mantic models. Here's what we're selling you. And it seems to me that they're focused a lot more on their IP and individualizing the armies. And I think that's a really, it's really cool to see them kind of take control of their own IP. You know, we've talked a lot about this concept of uh, the maturation of Mantic as a company. You know, we, we, we talked a lot about it at, it at the release of Vanguard, right? You know, when Mark and I were doing those Vanguard episodes, that was kind of like a reoccurring theme was uh, the, the sort of the trial and error, learning from mistakes, the sort of how how Mantic has grown as a company. And, and my big takeaway when I look at the book is just the overall beauty professionalism layout i mean not that their other books weren't real books but i'm looking at this this feels to me like an uh, uh, a genuine authentic release from a major company when it comes to uh, a rule book and i know um matt gilbert had really talked about he wanted people to sort of remember this book and look back on it and say hey you know remember kings of war third edition is sort of like a benchmark in quality and my first you know being with the book for a couple days i feel like they've they've succeeded in that goal i don't know what do you think mark oh yeah the book is just massive and i agree with you it's uh just absolutely beautiful 400 plus pages uh, one of the takeaways I have through there is definitely what I think was a critical flaw in KOW2 was, you know, the, the Mantic models and, um, you know, pushing the modeling side. And I think they definitely corrected that in this particular issue. 
You know, we uh, went to preferred model count. Uh, they've used the words mantic models. We've got galleries of beautifully painted mantic models, so they really stepped it up. So, as you mentioned, you know, hammering away on their IP, I mean, we've got 14 mantic armies in this book, and that's really good to see. So, you know, it's kind of come into its own. It is really polished. Like, it's it feels like a tome of rules as opposed to just like a little pamphlet that you carry around with you. It's like it's got weight in actual physical weight in the size and then it's just actually just feels important like it has like that a good that polished weight behind it actually it's worth mentioning you're, you're absolutely right because what it does it takes you into the world there's a lot of artwork in there that gives you a picture of what the world looks like so previously we've just been imagining right we've been imagining what water deep looks like we've been imagining what this looks like which is fine you can do that and that's been one of the strengths of the game but actually They've given us some incredible snapshots to allow us to base that vision off. And that starts, that symbolizes the growth of the world across the RPG, across the novels, all that kind of stuff, which is about making it not just a generic fantasy world, but a fantasy world that lives and breathes and we feel a lot more kind of attached to. And that's what's got me really excited, Steve. I mean, there's even maps in here. There's historic maps. There's location maps. There's the new map. I mean, they really put in the fluff, and uh, there's a lot of it, and we'll talk about that in a bit. You know, and in the past, when when people have asked me on second edition, what which which version of the book should I get, right? You know, it always been like, oh well, get the gamer version because you know there is fluff, but 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 this is sort of a thing where in the third edition book, as I'm scrolling through, instead of just like trying to get to the list and rules, uh, like what Steve and what you guys have mentioned, you come across a map or a picture of like an elfin city, like dammed up in a lake, and it's just like you're like whoa. Or like a, a map of a dwarven hold. I found there was elements in the fluff uh, 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 with the, such great art where I would actually stop and like the fantasy nerd within me wants to read about like what the world is. And I think the more investment we have in the world that uh, that's only ever going to help grow the game. Having a, a, an awesome sandbox to play in with these rules for a game that we love. So, I mean, that's really my biggest standout. It's like what, what you guys mentioned, which is just the, uh, the art, um, the polishness of the book is just really, really top notch. So what we're going to do today, as Rob kind of mentioned in the beginning of the episode, we're going to kind of look at some of the sort of core sections of the book. You know, the book is sort of divided in rules, background, lists. So we're sort of going to kind of touch on each of those things, mostly highlighting on stuff that's changed. And also, you know, we want everyone to buy this awesome book because it is awesome. So we're not going to go over absolutely everything. Like you won't be able to listen to this podcast and not need the book. But we're just going to kind of try to highlight things that we love, things that are, are changed, you know, uh, things that are different. Um, okay, Rob, why don't you take us away? Picking up on what you just said, really our focus is on What's changed from second to third from the perspective of a current Kings of War player? Uh, down the road, we will have an episode that goes full nuts into third edition of complete breakdown that's geared more towards the near player. Well, let's talk rules and let's dive right in with the shooting phase, which has now been called the ranged phase. Anybody have any crazy ideas of why they've changed it? My gut says it's because it's to make it more – when you hear shooting, you don't necessarily think of spells. But when you hear ranged phase – Maybe that better incorporates the idea that spells are in there as well. I'm not sure. What do you guys think about that? 
Yeah, I think this is just um, clearer delineation, isn't it? So it takes away some of the confusion. And that's what they've tried to do with the rules is to clarify them. Like, for example, the fact there's no difference between things like breath attacks and spells and all that kind of stuff. They're just ranged attacks of different types. And that makes it just that little bit clearer. Absolutely. Like, Go ahead. Stuff Alex. like heal and bane chant, they're not really shooting, but they're, they have a ranged effect. So I think that makes more sense just overall. Absolutely. Well, let's dive in and talk about units. So now we've got, you know, your basic infantry, but now you have another designation called heavy infantry, uh, which is the the guys that are on 25 millimeter bases. That's the, your gargoyles, your orcs. Uh, I assume you'll be your salamanders. The guys that historically have been on 25s are now designated heavy infantry. And one thing, Rob, is some people have asked on Facebook page or on different chats about, hey, am I going to need to have to remodel my iron guard on 25 millimeters because they're quote heavy infantry because they have defense six now the heavy infantry is not based on the defense of the unit essentially it's if you were on a 25 millimeter base you're considered a quote heavy infantry so just keep that in mind and i think it's a nice change because now they can just say this unit is heavy infantry and that you already know that means 25 millimeter bases as opposed to going into the profiles and figuring it out. Uh, chariot is now a separate unit type. Uh, it was part of large cavalry in second, which made a little bit of confusion because it, even though it was large cavalry, it was on the bigger 50 by 100 millimeter base. So having its own unit type is just, I think, cleaner from a rules standpoint. You have four different sizes of units. You've got troops, which is two by one regiment, which is three by one. A horde, which is now four by one, and a legion, which is three by two. So they used to have two sizes, now you have four. There's more there to do with, with the various armies. Uh, monsters infantry designation, um, those are just your large infantry that are actually on 50 millimeters bases. So that's, you know, your, your Molochs. Swarms, I, I did like this, uh, Jeremy. I know this is uh, close to your heart. Um, they did take the, the time to mention that if it's a swarm that's human size, it should be three miles per base. And if they're orcling size, they're five miles per base. You know, monster and then chariot in parentheses means it's a monster that's 50 on a chariot base instead of the 50 millimeter base. I'm, you know, that's your mammoth. The Titan unit type replaces what used to be called the colossal, and that's your 75 millimeter base. Um, and then for those that have asked before, exceptional base sizes still exist for heroes, monsters, titans, and war engines. But a couple things. One is they they're asking you to put it on the smallest base possible, and for some units, I'm thinking the monolith is one. Uh, it specifically says you can't. It is what it is. You, you can't go bigger. So I, I think that's that's interesting that they, for the for the units where exceptional base size could be exploited, they've just eliminated it for those for those units. So uh, lot, lots of changes in units, but really they're very slight tweaks. I think it just uh, makes things a little bit easier. And then also, Rob, uh, this is addition where I think Mantic is really uh, going all in on multi-basing. You know, they mention actually elements as far as putting stuff on your base. And a lot of the pictures when they're showing you how to base your units, they sort of give you all the options. You know, they show them in a movement tray. They show they'll give you examples of what it looks like to be multi-based. So I think that... Um, uh, multi-basing has are always been a thing promoted by Mantic, but in putting it clearly noted in the rules, it's sort of like really making multi-basing is not just like a side effect of what you can do for Kings of War, but really one of its selling points. Um, so in the book, you'll also see what we're, what we're traditionally used to seeing, which is sort of, you know, the unit chart where it shows you the size, how many models in the unit for all the different unit types. 
one thing that's missing uh, is that there is no more minimum model count. It is gone. But let's everyone calm down. Um, let's really, you know, really take a second and read this section when you get your book. Mantic is doing, in my opinion, a lot of really awesome stuff with the whole MMC, PMC uh, debate or issues or whatever you want to call it. Basically, Mantic now has what they're calling a preferred model count, which is 75% of the unit. But I think what Mantic is doing, which is really smart, is they'll talk about in that section that obviously with multi-basing, with building themed, uh, putting those themed elements into your base, that it not it's not always possible to fill your base with the correct number of models. Even with the PMC, they note in the in the text that if you're slightly above or slightly below, it's okay. You know, as long as your as your unit makes sense, it tells a cool story. Sort of, Rob, we've talked about it in the past. You know, the rule of cool that your unit is more than acceptable. I mean, it's one thing if you have a unit and there's plenty of room for other guys and your unit's not really making any sense. But I think a lot of people are going to see that minimal model count is gone and the instinct will be all like, oh, my army's invalidated, what do I do? But I really think what Mantic is doing is they're giving you a preferred model count, 75% of the unit, but if your, your unit makes sense and it's really impossible for you to fit another model on, that that's okay. Just, you know, let's have fun and let's play the game. Um, and then outside of that, I think the really empowering tournament organizers that if TOs want to get more spe- specific about model counts or counts as or whatever, they can then put that in their pack. Um which we've always talked about, you know, run the event uh, that you want to be in. So I think in a way this is giving us a baseline for how multi-basing works that to me is completely logical, totally makes sense. You know, it goes back to there, there was that one Supreme Court justice who was when he was talking about like naughty things, he's like, they're like, give us a definition of it. And he's like, you know, when you see it, but I know it when you see it. And I think when it comes to multi-basing and the rule of cool, when we see a multi-base, that makes sense, it's like, I know it when I see it. Or when I see a multi-base that obviously the person didn't put time in and they're trying to game the system, it's like, you know it when you see it. So -hmm. I don't know what you guys think. I think in this sort of mantic stepping away from trying to give you all these exact amounts of models and instead saying, here's PMC, it's 75%, it's what you guys should shoot for, but as long as your unit makes sense, tells a cool story if you're one or two models above or one or two models below that's okay just focus on doing cool hobby telling cool stories i don't know what were were your guys sense with the new uh pmc yeah for me i think it's just if you give somebody a minimum then some people are just going to do the minimum just getting rid of the minimum and here's your target now wow which is 75 percent. i think we're going to see a lot more folks shooting for it not everybody's going to get there and that's fine but, you know, I think rule of cool is a great thing, and I think it's in our ha- – ultimately, it's in our hands, right? So I, I think it's uh, – the sky has not fallen. I think one of my favorite things about the old MMC, you know, multi-basing rules was that equivalent volume. And I think that should always be your goal anyway. Like, you just want to f- fill the base and make it look cool. So I think equivalent volume gives you room with proxies and just being able to use – you know, the right models for what you want to do and just 
you know, create and cool basing the way you want. So you just have to fill the base. And I think this doesn't change that. I think a lot of this is going to rely on uh, TOs remaining cool, right? Be cool people. So, you know, as long as they don't take the letter of the law to be fact, I can't see this really changing a lot of things apart from giving people a guideline. And the principle of it is sensible, which is to drive model sales, because at the end of the day, Mantic is a model company, and I get that. Uh, but it does need TOs to not not turn into rules lawyers over it, if you see what I mean. And it should be focused on that if it looks like what it is principle. And I think then it will be fine. Yeah, you know, I think, Steve, you're exactly right, which is I think the spirit and they don't necessarily say it like 100% clear, but I think Mantic's mission and spirit in this section is very clear. Uh, like what Rob said, here's the preferred, and even says, shoot for 75% is probably your your baseline, which is, again, speaking to what Steve's saying, which is they are a model company and need to sell models. Shoot for 75%, but like what Alex said, if your unit makes sense and is well done, if you're plus or minus a couple models... The book really doesn't say that that's bad. It says it's completely fine. So then it's just going to be the tournament organizer uh, who steps in. And maybe, you know, there's going to be lots of ways that, you know, they can choose to decide to to, to judge armies or whatever. But to me, this is a, a, a good direction that we're going as long as people just don't jump, you know, get their jump to conclusion mat out, leave that in the closet and just, you know, stick to what, what I think the core spirit of this change, which is here's a benchmark to try to shoot for. But as long as your model is, your unit is cool, makes sense, you spent time, I can't imagine we running into any issues unless they're issues that we create ourselves, you know, by being too, um, going bonkers, you know, leave that to Tom Annis's house. So yeah, one of the big things is uh, MMC is only going to be an issue for us old grognards. All the new players in KOW, Three are just going to see PMC, so MMC will fade away into the distance in just a just a year or so as uh, everybody gets used to it. But I'm not planning on rebasing my MMC stuff, so you know, hopefully. And um, you know, as noted, if there's a tournament that's strictly PMC and they're going to you know drop the rule on it, I'm going to vote with my dollars and not go. And I think any TO worth their salt is going to see that the rulebook says if you're plus or minus PMC, that that's fine. I cannot imagine a TO saying, okay, guys, PMC, that's it. You can't, you know, your awesome unit that uh, only has six knights on it that, like, I have one, like, my Basilean, are you regiment of my knights? Oh, I can only fit six. It's impossible for me to put one more. I can't imagine a TO saying you can't bring that unit to this tournament. So I think this is one of those things that, you know, the outcry or frustration will be more one of perception, whereas I see the actual actuality of this being enforced in tournaments to really be not be much of a change moving forward. And I think as long as we keep keep our heads cool, stick to what the, the, the core sort of spirit of the rule is. And then as a TO, if you want to do something else, you can. And then like what Mark said, in the end, we as uh, participants in tournaments, you get to go to the tournaments that are in line with your philosophy or your feeling on something so that you know uh vote with your dollar exactly one of the new rules and we've seen it in um the uh, army reviews that kyle has been doing on mastercrafted and it's something you know that we we've sort of had had in the game um uh, somewhat previously where you have certain abilities that affect only certain types of troops but what they've done is they've added a keyword system 
uh, units are now have keywords like the zombie is a keyword, uh, earthbound, flamebound. You know, there's been lots of different keywords, and the, uh, it's interesting to see how they're using that as a way to just you know clean up and clarify how rules are going. Like it, you may have a rule that only affects things with the zombie keyword. And then also what I think is really interesting, and I think it's a concept that we've seen in this book, and I, I think it's worth talking about, is they put in a lot of elements knowing that they're going to use those elements in the future. So, for example, there's lots of keywords in the book that have no current usage, but with a sort of idea of future balancing, right? Like, I think when they released Kings of War 2nd Edition, I don't think it was within the paradigm of each year we're going to do a Clash of Kings update book. I think the Clash of Kings update book grew out of necessity. Whereas in 3rd Edition, I think they realize as a company that there's going to need to be yearly or somewhat uh, uh, scheduled balance tweaks or adding in new units. So a lot of the infrastructure built into third, it seems to me, with a sort of a lens on the future and uh, keywords is one of those things to where it's more tools that they can use in the future to balance the game. So like sort of future proofing. They've done a lot of future proofing on some of these new rules. And it just kind of gives you the impression and hope that they have a road roadmap of they know where they're going roughly and they want they know what they want to do and they have given themselves like levers to pull and adjust as they need as they need to going forward oh i definitely feel that that's the case uh you know matt's been all over the place talking and it sounds like he's got this thing mapped out for at least 18 months to two years right now so they know where they're going and you know hey one of the things that i think they should keep in there is the annual update uh, because number one, it, uh, we all buy a new book, uh, so that's good for the company. And number two, it does give them a chance to rebalance it and keep the game fresh. I think everybody needs that. You know, this particular game doesn't have codexes or army books that are rammed down our throat at 50 bucks a pop. So, um, you know, we need something to keep the game fresh and to change the meta up a little bit. And we do that once a year as opposed to every two months, every month, whatever, And which I think is a good thing because then we get to digest the changes. We get to play with the changes for an entire year. And then it's by the time that's done, everybody's ready for, you know, the next annual update. And everybody's excited about the next annual update because they know anything that happens during the tournament season is going to get corrected. And so people are very excited to see it come by. And also, you know, the, you know, support Mantic. You know, I think one thing you've heard as a narrative from the RC and people at Mantic for Clash of Kings, you know, they, what was it? It was, we can't change points or we can't do this. Or, you know, they were able to make a balance tweaks and add new units, but it was w within sort of they only had certain criteria that they could touch. I think the keyword is just another another balancing, just another built-in element that they can use for those annual updates that instead of something completely new you're adding on, it's already built into the DNA of the game. So I think it's smart. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, instead of having to retroactively add stuff in or try to you know shoehorn something in, just create the space that allows you to grow into it. Another change, and I'm curious to see what you guys think, is they did redesign the um, unit profile. Not only is it visually different, but I think probably the biggest change, right, is that they've now added in unit strength, and unit strength is no longer intrinsically linked to unit size. 
So that's another interesting balance tool that they've added, and you know, to kind of uh, uh, you know uh, get in the way of maybe unit strength abuse or whatever. Are, how are you guys feel about now that you've set with the book for a while, the the um, the change to the unit profile, how the, how it's designed, and the the addition of unit strength? What do you guys think about that? I think it's really interesting. The whole unit strength differences they can catch you out because you're not expecting them. And I was listening to to I think it was Dan King talking about, or may, it may be matt james talking about how that's been balanced so if it's a cheaper unit if it costs you less to buy it it's got less unit strength so it stops armies being able to flood the board with you know huge amounts of incredibly cheap troops and just winning scenarios on unit strength alone and actually if you're paying that premium for a more expensive large unit you're going to get some more of that premium their unit strength um so it means your opponent, so if in something like Invade, your opponent might have more units across their half, but if you've got your more expensive unit um, protected and, and developed, then you can uh, reap the benefit. And I think that's quite a nice change in it. It will ca- catch people out for a little while. It kind of goes, it splits the difference between before we had unit strength, it was just unit cost was how you determine like controlling objectives and getting, you know, getting the most points across the board for Invade or whatever. So now it's a little bit more balanced in that there's a there's more granularity, but it's not so much completely tied to points. It's just there's more points for, you know, more unit strength for, you know, units that are, you know, better for holding objectives and cheaper ones are just not as useful now. But they're still they still have a use. It's just yeah, I think it just balances out that this the spam of cheap units in terms of the layout. I mean, I like having height as part of the layout. Um, because that was something that was always a little bit confusing. And with the different heights of things in version three, it will take time to get used to it. So things to watch out for is stuff like um, different heights of chariots. So the majority of chariots being height three can't see over the new hills. Some of them are height four, so they can. It's something that it's useful to have listed as part of the unit profile. The actual layout, people, are, it's, I think it's a Marmite thing. Some people are like, oh, it's really not intuitive, blah, blah, blah. Fact of the matter is it, it's... It's easier once you get used to it. It's really not that hard. And also, most people will use things like Easy Army anyway when it would just be on a spreadsheet format. So it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the bubbles, but I love the unit strength and I love the height being on there. Because if you take a look at my Easy Army printouts, you'll see that I penciled all those in on my list. So I've always had that on there. So I was thrilled to see it in there. I'm also glad that it's moved around a little bit. And as Alex pointed out, you know, it has matured from the different additions of the game, and I think this is a good change. So I'm looking forward to it, um, you know, as it was mentioned, you know, flooding the, the field with cheap troops uh, on unit strength. That used to be everything we talked about on the show all the time, unit strength. How much unit strength do you got? How many drops, you know? So, But this will definitely change it up. I still don't think it will change that discussion, but... Uh, very cool. But yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, Easy Army, I think we're going to get it all in that nice line that we're used to, and I think everything will be fine. But uh, really, really, really like that height and unit strength are now part of the unit profile. The other thing I really like about the the thing, too, is all the special keywords and stuff like that are all part of the profile now. You know, the uh, special rules and stuff, uh, it's not kind of left to the imagination a little bit. So, you know, if uh, if you got a special rule that applies to, like, uh, you know, a bunch of the units and stuff like that, like Headstrong for the Dwarves, it's listed on, in the profile, which is nice, so... Yeah, I think there's just a general trend to try to make things easier to read, more clear, and again, um, 
uh, and putting those things onto stat line, um, like Steve mentioned, you're able to add in a little granularity or, uh, have a little difference. You know, I was looking, you know, we'll talk a little bit later in the show, uh, looking at, uh, army lists, but like, for example, uh, monsters are not all the same height, you know, like Trident Realms and Knuckers height four, whereas a greater water elemental is height five, which again sort of makes sense of this big giant lumbering water beast, you know what I mean? Um, so I think you're going to see that where, you're, where all unit types of the same are not necessarily going to be the same height. But again, that allows you more room for uh, flavor, balancing. As Rob mentioned earlier, the shooting phase was changed to the range phase. And again, I, I think the gameplay of the of Kings of War hasn't really changed all that much. You know, you have your movement, your ranged, your melee phase. Uh, I think, you know, the round is broken up into each player having their turn. So I think the flow of the game will be same. I think the big change, and that's one that... Um, uh we've there's been a lot of talk about is that the bounce back rule has been eliminated and now there's a special rule called disengaging i know out of us steve you're like one of the only people who i think you know has really fully played third edition when you did your battle report what were your thoughts getting a game in with the bounce back rule gone it it, it makes the game quicker it's less annoying you have to remember everyone you know we've gotten so used to bouncing i think if you play the game a lot but you have to remember you you go and i bat no i don't bounce and i no i don't bounce um but once you've got used to it actually it just makes the game a lot faster because you're not doing these awkward reforms and bounces and do i bounce or do you bounce and can i bounce and what's the you know forget that it's not there anymore and that's actually much cleaner it does uh, produce some interesting situations so where you can for example if you're positioning for a flank or the units that already is already engaged, you can get caught out. For example, if the unit that you're going to uh, flank charge next turn disengages, you might suddenly end up with them in your flank. Um, so it, there's more things to watch out for where you're used to perhaps setting traps, which um, when units disengage, change the positioning. So that's a nice, clever little detail. But um, in general, it just makes the game quicker uh, and um, less complicated, which is uh, very welcome. There's also, there's lots of like regional rules lensing. And what I mean by that is you, a certain area will play a rule a certain way, whether or not it's the right way or wrong way. It's regions have sort of flavors on how rules are done. And I think the bounce back rule was one of those that like wherever you went in the country, they would do it slightly different. You know, especially I noticed that in, in traveling around the tournaments all over the U.S., depending on where I would go, it's almost like those people there did bounce back in a slightly different way. And in getting rid of it, you're done. You don't have to worry about it. Um, but it's still with the disengaging rule, which is that, you know, there's certain criteria where you can still, you know, bounce back an inch and, and then give a nimble charge order or whatever. So there's still the bounce back is not completely gone. You can still disengage, but there's, uh, uh, that's more of like a special command that you do as opposed to something that you're having to try to go back and forth with your opponent on every round of combat. So I like it. Um, I think it's a pretty, uh, I guess, and also to one of the more fundamental rules changes that we've seen in the edition, um, along with measuring charge distances from any point um, on the frontage and not just the unit point or unit leader point like it was in second edition 
I mean, I think this is a great rule. Uh, having played dwarves and GTs, it's, it was, it was really frustrating <laughs> to me. Like the edge of my horde of dwarves is like, could reach out and give you a back massage, but you're eight inches away from my leader point. So I can't charge you. So I don't know what you guys think, but I think the, I'm really interested to see how the measuring distances is really going to affect charges and also like when you're trying to stay out of charge range it's going to be a whole another style of measuring measuring your opponent opponent's charge range um so i think it's going to be an interesting change how they're gonna uh, how the measuring the distance for charges has changed i think it's really going to shrink the battlefield in some ways like if you have a horde of movement five or six infantry now that threat range is huge and you're going to have to really think about your positioning a little more, especially, I think it gives those infantry horde armies a little more uh, options when they're dealing with really fast nimble armies or avoidance armies. So I think it's going to be a little harder to run those. And then you're going to have a lot more board control from infantry hordes. I think it's It makes the game faster significantly faster as in you are into combat quicker unless you're very good at avoiding it if if your opponent is uh, focused on getting to you fast say they're a speed six even if they're a, you know not a speed six army they can get across the board that much quicker because those big infantry whores have just got that huge threat range and think about things like um there's cavalry legions or cavalry hordes um so double width cavalry there's more of that in the game if you've got speed eight cavalry with that kind of base size you're not going to be able to avoid them charging you and unless you're very very good at avoidance and that just makes that game much punchier and that was an issue with cal i mean you bring up a really interesting unit and that would be the sort of competitive uh reasoning behind why a lot of people didn't people didn't like to take cavalry hordes which is uh it's impossible for me to get anywhere you just block me up you know you throw chaff into me whatever but now cavalry horde uh, units have such a bigger uh, region of board denial. I'm really curious to see um, if we start seeing more cavalry horde units taken in competitive lists for that ver- the very reasons you bring up. And obviously, we should mention dwarves here, right? They're going to be a very big beneficiary for this change. Totally. One of the other things to point out, too, is that you still need your leader point for determining if it's front flank or rear charge as well. So... You know, even though you can charge off that edge, that that edge isn't determining which facing you're going into. So I think that's a key point as well. Oh, yeah. And Mark, you bring up a good point, too, right? Multi-charges, you still can't swap relative positions. So leader points still do matter, as Mark said, for determining where you're charging, but also when you're uh, aligning units where stuff, the ending of where stuff's got to be, unit point still matters. And I should mention that that's an area that I I appreciate the clarification because in second edition, they didn't really explain what that meant. And now it's very specific. It is where the unit leader points are relative to the other units charging. So if you this the unit's leader point on the left and you have a unit leader point on the right for two different units, that is the deciding factor about where they need to end up. And because I mean, there there were some situations where maybe they were stacked units and it gets a little bit a little bit different. It's a little bit dif- difficult to figure out. But now that, now that they've got the rules in black and white, it makes things uh, so much easier. All right. Well, let's talk about my favorite subject, which is terrain. And the one thing that I really like about the way they've laid out the terrain, um, obviously, they've, they've cleaned up the rules, but also they've given us a lot of um, recommendations 
about how you should use terrain in your games. Um, the first one is they say that you should use 8 to 12 pieces of terrain. And they also make a point of saying you should have some of the different, you know, a few of the different types. You should have some of these different types. One thing I did notice right away, decorative terrain is gone. And I was like, oh, I mean, I, I know direct decorative terrain from second edition didn't matter. It just basically said you have a piece of terrain that just looks cool on the table and you just ignore it. So it, it really didn't need to be there. But I thought, oh, OK. So they, they've actually um, they've thought about this quite a bit. Um, I also like the fact that they mentioned they recommend leaving 12 inches between blocking terrain. And don't forget, board edges are considered blocking terrain. So um, that's so that you don't make uh, impassable areas where your your bigger hordes can't fit. Um, I don't know yet exactly how this is going to affect, you know, the areas that play that um, player deployed terrain. So it, it's going to be definitely very interesting how they how they incorporate some of these things. They do say avoid hills and deployment zones, which I think is interesting. You know, I think hills are not quite as broken as they used to be. From a shooting standpoint, I think they've gotten better. We'll talk about it in a minute. I think they've gotten better um, for combat. So um, generally, just generally, before we get into the actual changes to the terrain, what do you guys think of terrain overall in uh, in this third? You know, I think that uh, instead of giving you map packs, what they do, Rob, is they give you suggestions, which is uh, a more robust suggestion than what's been in the past. And if they're suggestions based off of, I think, stuff we've run into playing games, you know, like the idea of spreading blocking uh, terrain or don't have hills and deployment zones, that was sort of stuff that just grew out of playing. And you do bring up an interesting point about dot deployment. And again, I think as with PMC, what we're seeing here is uh, Mantic is giving more robust and clarified instructions based on player feedback. And then if you're running a terrain or you're running a, a tournament that uses dot deployment terrain, maybe in your rules you say, you know, when placing blocking terrain on a dot, it can't be near 12 inches to another dot. I mean, it's just more ways to empower the TO on what they want to do if they want to do something specific for terrain. But as far as a baseline, Mantic is trying to provide us with a baseline for terrain that has been influenced by the last three years of playing Kings of Version, Kings of War version 2.0. Um, so I, my initial impressions is I like what they're doing. So they've changed um, a little bit the heights in, in line with the heights across everything, right? So there's no difference between flat and zero anymore which was always confusing so it's good that that's gone but there's a note there about they're trying not to standardize it they don't want to say a hill is height three right they say all terrain is height one plus one inch per height of the actual terrain on your board and that gives some flexibility that i think it would be nice to see people playing with a little bit so this this hill is height four because it's a massive hill so on and so forth. And this building is this height mm -hmm. um, based on the heights of the units and i think that will make for more interesting and dynamic battlefields yeah, yeah. And I think another thing that I'm going to be doing is more mixed terrain. I know they don't cover it in the book, but, you know, obstacles on a hill. But let's talk about some of the specific terrain. Let's start with hills, because I think they're the ones that have changed the most. Finally, if you're half on the hill, you're on the hill. <laughs> it's quite simple, right? If half the your footprint is on the hill, that unit is considered on the hill. And when you're on the hill, you add your height to the, you know, to the height of the hill. Uh, now, um, to make it consistent with difficult terrain, if your leader point is on the hill, you have line of sight over the hill. But it's important to note that unless half of your unit is on the hill, you're still not on the hill. And so you would still be taking cover penalties. But you can see it, right? So you could see to shoot, but in half your unit's off the hill, uh, then you're, you're still going to take the cover penalty. Uh, and then I think the biggest change is if your unit starts on the hill, 
and charges off of it or down the hill, as they say, you get TC1. And I'm just going to read it because there is some there is some exceptions. If a unit that begins its turn on a hill makes a charge that is not hindered against a unit that is not on the hill, the charging unit gains the thunderous charge plus one special rule. Units with the fly special rule, including those who have temporarily lost the special rule due to being disordered, do not gain this bonus. I've already started to think, you know, how is this going to influence – you know, t- hills in tournaments and in, in, in casual play. Um, I, I think up until now, we've sort of just taken hills for granted. Like, really, hills have just become line of sight blockers, right? That in second edition, that's what they were. But I think now they're going to be much more dynamically incorporated into the game uh, as strategic points, right? Like, obviously, yes, you can still shoot off a hill, and that's great. But now that ability to charge, um, that ability to put your unit leader point on the hill. But still be behind the hill, right? You know, and still be half your you know off the hill. Um, it's going to open up a whole kinds of thing where I could see you, but I still have to take the cover penalty. I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, and and we should also mention uh, range for shooting is still from the unit leader point. So even though with charging it's measured at you know whatever point you want, the range for shooting is still from the unit leader point. So uh, really, hills are the only ones that really changed. I mean, difficult terrain is still the same. Obstacles are basically the same, and blocking terrain is 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 really the same as well. So, and I just want to add, I like that hills are now kind of like reverse forests or difficult terrain. Like instead of being hindered and losing a point of thunderous charge, now charging out of them gives you thunderous charge. So it kind of creates another state of terrain on the boards where it's like it's an advantage. It's not just a hindering or disadvantage. Like interacting with it. I think that's a really cool change. And with respect to cover, um, you have to be half in the difficult terrain still to receive cover and or half of your frontage be covered. Hills do not negate cover anymore um, when they're of the same height or shorter. They just add height to the shooting unit. That's a big change. That's a really yeah, big change. Really and one big of the change. yeah, one of the real reasons why we wouldn't put hills in the in the deployment zone is because I put my ogre shooters on them, and it's a height to hill. I can pretty much see over all of my own units and shoot yes. without cover. Yeah. But that's and gone think, now. And I think it's good because it's just making everything more consistent across the board. Like terrain interacts with units in a consistent manner. It just adds height. It doesn't create a new special rule. And there's the element you have to be quite careful with hills now as well. So, for example, if you're behind a hill but your 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 corner's on it, then you could be seen. But if your leader point isn't on it, you can't see over, right? So yeah. it makes them a little bit less powerful for you unless you're on them, in which case you can charge off them. So it's adding a little bit more strategy to how you're using terrain, right? One thing we almost forgot to mention when we were talking about cover is that in second edition you would ignore uh, difficult terrain for the purposes of cover if you're in the difficult terrain. But now in 3rd edition, a firing unit that received a halt order in its movement phase ignores any piece of difficult terrain that it is currently within or in base contact with for determining whether an enemy unit is in cover. Your leader point has to be in difficult terrain in order for you to see through it. When On the turn that you move into the difficult terrain, you will still be taking cover shots. You have to ha- have your leader point in the difficult terrain and issue a halt order for it to actually negate the terrain that you are in now, which is a big change from pre- from second edition. Okay, now moving on to the melee phase. Um, one of the big changes is after routing an enemy, you can now move 
D3 right or left, which is a big change from just going forward or back or changing position. Nerve tests are at the end of the movement and ranged phases and after each combat in the melee phase. Yeah, my, my question, though, is what can do damage in the movement phase that requires a nerve test? I know there's the aura that does damage in the movement phase. It says no test. Is there something well, else? The, the blaster? Is that shooting phase? Or no, the blaster is really different. Blaster is does yeah. it doesn't have um it kills itself if it does a melee damage but it's just a ranged war machine otherwise right oh right so, yeah it's different may, maybe they're just future proofing here that yeah. there are things coming down the road that might do comp you know might do damage in the movement phase like that poison the nerve right. test or or if we've missed something in this gigantic mammoth rulebook our audience will be polite enough to point it out I'm sure Tom Annis will will, will be happy to help us. Yes. Uh, we okay. need to be nicer to Tom Annis. I think he's had a hard time of late, and I feel responsible. <laughs> um, I, I send him digital shoulder massages, so he's doing okay. Yeah, he, he's tough. He can take it. He's a handsome man. He's got his looks. It's fine. That's it. That's it. Well, with Malay, we've also got this devastated rule. You know, basically, we used to call it overkill, but basically, if you've got enough damage that's over your route value, your number of attacks, unit strength, and any spells that you have are all rounded down. So I think that's an interesting change. I think that the number of times this actually comes up, like when you double one a unit that's wildly over its damage, is pretty small. Exactly. Um, but I think I, I like it because I like the, the, the thematic element of it. It makes it makes much more sense from a story point of view for that unit to be really underpowered when it's lost half of its guys or whatever, right? I think it's a slight complication because you now have a status that you have to record on a unit for more than one turn. Uh, and that can be... I think that might be confusing, um, but there are kind of cool strategic elements because it doesn't have to be on a nerve test, right? Let's say you've got a cloak of death unit and you've got a really heavily damaged enemy, enemy, and you just push them over their their route value, and then suddenly, when they, if they got fury and they're charging into you or something, um, they're at half strength. So there are some quite nice strategic kind of clever plays you can do on this, which I quite like. Or let's say, for example, you've got a unit that's engaged and you drain life that unit. So let's say you've drained life a huge amount on that unit and pushed them over their route value. Suddenly, you've turned the tide of battle in a way you couldn't otherwise, because otherwise, drain life wouldn't involve a nerve test, but you now have an effect. So I think there's some cool things that come out of this. The other thing to know, too, is you can heal yourself out of that status. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of my bones of contention is that not all units, not all armies are, are treated equally, right? Because obviously, like Trident Realms with all the regen, this won't be quite as big a deal to them. I'm looking at the Devastator rule, and it doesn't say... Unit, it sees its routing limit, but hasn't suffered a route result as of a nerve test. So, like what he yeah. says, a unit that exceeds its routing limit, but is not checked based on what does the damage to it, is that unit then considered devastated? I would say yes. I would say yes, too, re reading by, by how the rule is written. Oh, that's, that is a really interesting I – hadn't, I hadn't thought about it. And does it just go away immediately once you've been healed or regened back under your rep value? It does, I think. And yeah, I think that's – and that's the problem that you know, Steve mentioned is you have this thing now that you've got to track, which it would have been better to say you're devastated for the next turn. And just leave it at that. Um, but now, every time you want to use that unit, you're going to have to check, are they devastated or are they not devastated? Yeah, I love the concept of devastated, but it probably would be good to have some Q&As regarding it with these sort of, uh, you know, outlying scenarios. But I, I like the uh, the spirit of the rule for sure. It's like that unit's hanging by a thread. <laughs> 
And one thing that was interesting, I'm curious to see in competitive play, if we're going to see, you know, often uh, competitive play have the, re- the tournament re-roll, which is usually linked to like a donation to charity, which I still love. But sort of the impetus of that tournament re-roll, right, was to re-roll the one in your double ones in your most like important combat in the game. So I'm curious to see how if we'll if we'll see the the popularity of tournament rerolls probably still um, with the devastated rule in place, but I'm just curious to see if that affects that at all. Okay, so individuals have seen some differences, mainly kind of to fit them in with the new rules. There are some interesting changes though. So individuals come uh, automatically loaded with the steady aim, so they can uh, move and shoot with no minus one to hit. Uh, so that's been removed from nimble. Okay. Another really interesting change is that they cannot use their free pivot to gain line of sight through or over terrain. That's huge because um, if you have an individual on a cavalry base, it was actually pretty, there was pretty much nothing they couldn't see by just pivoting in the right way. That's gone. If you can't see them, you can't see them in the beginning of your turn. Forget it. Another thing they can do is that uh, very specifically, they've listed out the rule that was previously FAQ and it was kind of hidden in one of the FAQs that if they're faced, they can, you can move into contact with an enemy, with a friendly unit to stop yourself being charged. So this is to stop nimble charge of uh, individuals, right? So this was always a rule. It's just been really specified. The biggest change is to do with yielding, um, yielding and mighty. So this has been covered fairly robustly. Um, in a lot of the leaks that have come out, but individuals by default are yielding, which means you can charge and move through them. Um, only the ones listed as mighty can block charges, which makes a lot of sense, right? If you put a standard barrier in front of a horde of infantry, they're just going to laugh and just run past them, right? But if it's, you know, uh, a really powerful hero, like a, 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 temp- a, a knight templar on a mount, they might not run through that person. That makes a lot of sense. You can still cleverly use the right number of individuals to block charges, but but only by putting them within the kind of the base. So if your base then can't fit, the charging unit can't fit into its target, um, they're going to have to charge the individual. But that just increases the chance of actually killing both and overrunning into that flank. So I really like this change. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, I think also too, Steve, a yielding unit that does a point of damage and disorders a unit that unit then can't move through them so you still can block units with yielding characters but no longer can you move the bsb in front of a horde of orcs with giant axes and then the orcs move them in front seven inches away from you know six and a half inches away in front of your unit i think the one you know the one caveat here is that with yielding you've got to be able to fit between the unit you're charging and the yielding guy there i think the one unit that kind of gets screwed in this is probably like a big horde like a legion of chariots but I mean, realistically, if you're close enough to the unit you actually want to charge with the yielding character, the chances are you're close enough for, for an overrun, right? So then you can still just hit the guy and go through. And it still has room for awesome narrative. So if you have your yielding BSB who wants to block a giant horde of orcs, you can still charge and try to block them, but you got to do that one point of damage to disorder them or they'll move right through you. So I think it still allows for like fun, fluffy, cool narrative uh, and, and strategic choices, but no longer is it just, oh, I'm dropping this guy right in front of you. It's like it, it's adding a little bit more interaction into that aspect of gameplay. Right. You can imagine that the standard bearer jammed his standard right into the eye of the order of the leaks, uh, the leader of the orcs. And they're all kind of like, what the hell? And so they didn't charge through that turn. Right. It makes sense narratively. Yeah. And it kind of calls back to like the knight hordes and the, the heavy infantry hordes. It gives a little them a little more leeway for charging because they were easier to you know block mm-hmm. up than other other units. And all this being said, I think it makes the really really cheap characters that we people would use these 
to block up units with, um, a little bit less useful, but there's still opportunities, right? Like you said, you can charge in with the, the yielding character and do a point, you know, point of damage, disorder them, and then they can't charge through you. I mean, there are still ways to, to chaff up with yielding characters. It's just a lot harder now, which I think is fair, given that most of these yielding characters are pretty cheap. Well, let's talk about some special rules. Um, this is an area that there's quite a lot of changes. In fact, some of them now have conditions. Like there may be, it might, it, for that unit profile, it might say elite. And then in parentheses, it might say melee or ranged. So it's in a conditional effect. Um, I mean, this has already kind of been around. You know, if you think about inspiring, they would have in that parentheses, like, you know, the warlock only inspires berserker braves, for example. Um, and in addition, now they've got this thing called plus N which is basically you're giving a, an ability to a unit, or if they've already got the ability, it stacks. Then then it makes perfect sense. And then obviously two big omissions now, no yellow belly, which I think we've known about, and no breath weapons. There's no breath. Breath has been replaced essentially by steady aim um, and a 12-inch shooting attack. So In terms of gameplay, it's huge. These changes, yellow belly and breath, are really quite big changes to the meta, I think. Um, so breath-wise... Having like three breath weapons, which is what Rakian and Goblins just used to do by default, those were hugely strong units. And I've lost count of the amount of battles that those breath weapons won. For them to be affected by normal shooting, normal ranged rules is massive because you knew with those you had a guaranteed hitting on fives as a minimum. Right. And if you're carrying around 45 breath or whatever you've got in your little breath battery, that was very, very, very strong. And now that's been massively reduced. And if you're going to be hitting on sixes or sevens because of various different uh, special rules, those are much, much reduced in power. So it's that part of that general nerf of shooting and allied with that, taking out yellow belly is massive. Um, that was always, uh, you know, for goblins and for units with um, like Ratkin slaves, for example, having yellow belly was always a huge crutch and it could really mess up your entire plan. The goblin army is vastly different because of the lack of that rule. There is none of the uncertainty for goblins anymore. And I think that's a really interesting change to the meta that kind of balances out some of the other changes to goblins. Question, though, I'm not as familiar with some of the changes to the actual units part. Are there units that have breath weapons that don't have steady aim? No, no, they still have steady aim, right? Okay. So, they so they're still, aim, but, but now, but now you take the cover and the, like, for example, a stealthy cover, penalty. stealthy, individual, all that stuff is affected, right. which is good, I think, because I think yeah. there's a reason why there was a preponderance of breath weapons in the game. Let's dive in and talk about some special rules. The first one is listed as aura and an X in parentheses, and that X could be it could be elite, it could be any number of other special rules. Essentially, you're giving units possibly with a condition. You're giving units within six inches of the source of aura a special effect. It could be lead. It could be vicious. It could be whatever. It's not unlike we already had with inspiring, right? If you're within six inches of, a, of the, the inspiring source, then, you, then you're inspired. So, And then also, too, Rob, one thing about the aura is we've had kind of similar effects in second edition. But one key change, I think, is that a lot of the positive auras – uh, not only affect units within six inches, but also the, the the source of the aura. And I know Kyle Timberlake had a question on our uh, uh, Countercharge Facebook question thread asking about is there going to be something like the uh, Forlorn Guard or is there going to be like a Paladin element? And I think there's a really interesting one in that for uh, – uh, you can spend on one unit of Paladin Foot Guard for you can get them um, what's called a Defender upgrade, and it gives them an Elite for Paladin Infantry, 
and that so basically any thing with the paladin and infantry keyword so that's other paladin and foot guard the high paladin on foot you know they all get elite within six inches so i think we're going to see those auras are going to be a really interesting um both positive and negative to 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 building army lists synergy wise i'm gonna blow your mind real quick dan king just mentioned if you martyr's prayer and you get yourself above your own route value you're devastated Oh, (laughs) I'm like, that's amazing. So I think I think Aura is a really, a really exciting part of the game. And they do change it. So some of them, the Goblin King, for example, having Aura of Headstrong. That's huge for troll based armies, right? You just stick your little king behind your trolls and suddenly they've all got Headstrong. No, you don't have to pepper them with little items anymore. Utterly fantastic. And you see the Abyssal from the recent link, uh, the recent leaks. They have got Auras up the wazoo. You know, you've got auras of brutal, you've got auras of wild charge, you've got auras of this, that, the other. Some armies are going to really benefit from using these intelligently. And it means your deployment and your positioning becomes really important. And also sniping off those characters becomes really important as well. So I think this is a great strategic change. Love it. It kind of gives you those, without formations, it gives you the ability to kind of make your own formations or your little, like, uh, battle groups that you have pl- plans for ahead of time. So I think I like that a lot. Let's talk about Brutal. We've had Brutal in the past. We've even had Brutal. Uh, I know Matabusu had D3 Brutal. So we've had more than just one Brutal. But there's uh, one thing that's really changed quite a bit, which is Brutal no longer stacks with Dread. That I know that like Funny Bone character was used to good effect when you, you use him in combination in, in Malay with Brutal characters and stuff. So that's a a, bu- a big thing. Uh, and just note, you know, if you have units in combat that have brutal, you just take the highest brutal value among the units in combat. So hasn't changed a lot, but there's a, a couple little tweaks there. You can't make those theme armies with loads of different sources of dread, right? Because there's just one source that you take. It doesn't stack with brutal, doesn't stack with shattering, which is the ranged brutal, the new one. Um, so you can't get like a minus three to nerve anymore. Right, right. And we should let's just jump and talk to Dread. You know, Dread is, you know, minus one to enemies waiver and nerve values within six inches, six inches of the sources of Dread. And as you said, does not stack with Brutal, does not stack with Shattering. Certainly knocks out some of those or nerve attacking attacking uh, strategies. Uh, Cloak of Death, you know, that's one that uh, I think is going to play a big role in the game. Um, it's at the end of the movement phase. All units within six inches of the source of Cloak of Death take a point of damage. Note this doesn't stack, so you can't take more than one point of damage from you know multiple sources of Cloak of Death. Big thing here: there's no nerve test. Is it the Gore Blight and Cronius? Are those the two that who, who are the two that have them? Those are the main ones that I've been aware of so far. Yeah, you can do cool things with the Gore Blight because he's a surgical, right? Because he's a shambling unit, so you can move him up, take a tick of damage off loads of units. And then search him further on into the side of a unit. So it's like a multiple, you know, which might not be within that six inches. So I think it's kind of a cool multiple damage strategy for these kind of new monsters. Let's touch on Duelist. Uh, Duelist is what you think it is. You double attacks against an individual in melee. Then the fly rule is still around, but it's changed a little bit. Um, they've stripped out nimble. So just having fly no longer gives you nimble, which I think, uh, I don't know what you guys' thoughts are on it, but I think that really affects some units more than others. Um, and obviously, you're disordered. It still knocks out fly. Effects are low heat. It's fine. No more Tomanus jokes. But um, I think what's interesting is that there is a sub note in that fly section that if you have nimble and fly and you're disordered, so you lose fly, you also lose nimble. Right. right? So there's no get around there. So you're not still nimble if you happen to be a nimble flyer. Again, the rules are just 
the rules committee has tried to simplify things and really just lay it out in a more logical fashion with less layering and just making everything very clear, which is helpful, I think, especially for newer players. Absolutely. Let's keep this train rolling. Uh, a new special rule called Frozen. I know that we've talked about that or has been talked about when they did the Northern Alliance update. Uh, let it go. Let it go. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the new one's coming out. My daughter's getting excited, so I'm going to have to Still hasn't seen it. I don't, <laughs> don't plan oh on it. So Frozen, if you, ha- if you are Frozen, that unit has minus one speed unless the unit is speed four or less, and it does not stack. There's several different ways you can become Frozen through spells or icy tip arrows, whatever. Um, ignore Cover is a special rule unto itself uh, because I think mainly because it's no longer part of the next special rule, Indirect. Um, it doesn't Indirect does not mean you ignore Cover any longer, um, and Indirect basically means you just can't target units within 12 inches anymore. Then we get to Mighty. I know we've touched on Mighty. Mighty just means that individual is not yielding. Nimble has changed quite a bit. No longer includes the ability to move and shoot without the minus one penalty. And if you're disordered by a unit with a phalanx or ensnare, you lose Nimble. And as Steve alluded to earlier when we talk about fly, if you're disordered by a unit and your unit is has fly and Nimble – it loses both of those when you're disordered. So uh, Nimble is definitely um, taking a hit in this in this edition. I think it's a good thing because Nimble units were just, you know, all over the place. So, you know, anything to kind of slow it down a little bit, I'm happy about. It plays into, like, how Phalanx has been... Insect Edition Phalanx was kind of, like, a useless rule or didn't really serve as much a purpose as, I think... It should. So now I think it gives you a bit more options. In Clash of Kings 19, it was similar with the ensnare and removing nimble. But I think it just gives those infantry blocks a little bit, again, it's about board control. And you have to think about when you're charging, who you're charging a little bit more. I'm interested to see about how much of an effect the phalanx change has. Because it's for cavalry, large cavalry and flyers. And I think we might see less large cavalry and flyers. People are going to go more infantry which makes taking all this phalanx stuff a little bit less powerful than it was it will disincentivize people to run solid cavalry armies because you just put loads of phalanx people against them and they're pointless um Mm -hmm. so the the meta will balance and i'll be interested to see whether phalanx has the effect that i think the rules committee hopes it does and i think it's going to make a large infantry and monsters a little more important to like break through those lines of phalanx infantry well, let's talk about Phalanx. Uh, it still strips Thunderous Charge like it did in 2nd Edition, but now unhindered cavalry, large cavalry, and flyers charging into a unit with Phalanx are minus one to hit in Malay. Now, I question, I didn't look at it. Does it actually say only from the front? Yeah, it's from the front. That is a big change. Well, I do wonder that, you know, we mentioned it a little bit with Hills, that you talk about, well, are people not going to play Cap because of Phalanx? But, you know... Uh, Cav will be interesting as a little bit of a faster unit that can get up onto a hill to gain that extra TC. So maybe there'll, there'll be other elements in the game that make Cav a, a little bit better, like how they're measured distances or stuff like that, that will still make them viable, even though people are going to be taking units with Phalanx. That's just one of those things I think we're not going to know for sure until we actually see games played. And just overall, like when we get into the army list we'll see that some of the hard-hitting cavalry are a little less hard-hitting this mm-hmm. this edition so that combined with phalanx to like that could you know shift the meta quite a bit well let's keep rolling a pot shot is a new special rule 
essentially it's you can move and shoot with your ranged weapon, but you have a minus two penalty. I know ogre shooters uh, are one of the ones that have that have this new rule. So that's kind of neat because in the past those units had reload, and now yes they can move and shoot, but it is a hefty hefty penalty. I mean essentially for the ogres, if 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 all you had was moving and shooting, you're you're hitting on sevens. So you're actually hitting on sixes and you're only getting nine, nine attacks. So it, it at least lets you do something with them, right? I mean, that's, that's a thing, which I think is, is, is positive. Radiance of life is an aura, uh, where all units within six inches get one point of damage restored. Essentially, it's the opposite of Cloak of Death. Um, and just like Cloak of Death, it doesn't stack with other sources of radiance of life. The scout special rule, aka Vanguard, it's the sac- exactly the same as before, but with one key change, which is, uh, you ignore difficult terrain penalty uh, when moving at the double during your scout move. So in the past, you know, you got your 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 ability to take, do at the double, but if you didn't have Pathfinder, you could be slowed down by difficult terrain. And now you just take the full penalty. You know, you take the full movement you want, um, regardless of whether or not you go into difficult terrain, which I think is going to be really really interesting, guys. I don't I don't know. What do you guys think about that change? I think it's kind of um so a lot of the Pathfinder units in version two had um uh, sorry, a lot of the vanguarding units in version two had Pathfinder, right? So it didn't really if it like Forest Shambler, stuff like that. There's an item now you can take that gives you scout, right? So if you put that on somebody who flies or is moving ten or something like that, what you've got is somebody that's just shot twenty inches up the board into a piece of cover. Um so there's some quite powerful stuff that could be done with this if you've got a strong vanguarding army. I think it's quite interesting to see how this plays out, right? Absolutely. And the next special rule is shattering. We mentioned it. It's basically brutal for shooting. And again, as we mentioned a couple of times, does not stack with dread. Uh, then there is steady aim, which is you can move and shoot without the minus one penalty. Um, and then the final new special rule is wild charge N. And essentially, uh, I know we talked about this um, in relation to some of the Northern Alliance stuff, but uh, – it's basically you're adding to the charge distance, not the speed. So, and you you roll the D three or D whatever, or it may not even be a number. I'm gonna start over that. Another special rule that you know we've talked about a little bit earlier, and it's been in some of the leaks, is wild charge N. This can be either a set specific number, like wild charge one, wild charge two, or it can be a variable like wild charge D three. And how wild charge works is that you determine the wild charge distance before, if it's variable, before giving a movement order. And essentially, they get to add that amount of speed after their speed is doubled. So if you have wild charge 2 and you are speed 5, you can essentially charge 12 inches because you're doubling your speed. I think it's pretty interesting. I wish every unit in the game had it just to kill off the Mexican standoff thing. Well, let's jump into army construction because I think this is an area that has – this might be the area that's changed the most in terms of all the, the, the various sections of the rules. Um, it's going to get a little convoluted, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along at home. Essentially, large infantry, monstrous infantry, and large cavalry regiments – do not unlock. That is a huge change. And uh, I am one sad panda, let me tell you. That yeah, is that's a huge change. killing my small uh, well, model armies, Rob. Yeah, I, I never like never ran my ogres uh, in regiments typically, but there are I'm I'm assuming there were people that like to do that multiple small unit and we're making on the fact that you know they had a lot of unit strength and they unlocked a lot of stuff. Uh, that's just not gonna be the case now. Um, so let's talk about the units that actually do unlock. So infantry, heavy infantry, 
cavalry or chariot regiments unlock two troops and a hero, a monster, or a titan, or a war engine. You pick one of those four. Infantry, heavy, heavy infantry, cavalry, and chariot hordes and legions unlock four troops, and then they can get one of each of the following, a hero, a war engine, and a monster or a titan. Then large infantry, monstrous infantry, large cavalry hordes, they unlock two troops, and then they unlock two of the following, a hero, a monster, a titan, or a war engine. You can pick two of those, and you can't pick the same thing twice. And then finally, a large infantry, monstrous infantry, cavalry, large cavalry legion unlocks four troops. And again, just like before, they get two of a hero, a monster, a titan, or a war engine. That's a lot. Crazy. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's changed quite a bit. It really, I I think. What's uh, nice is there's a big diagram on the page, right? So you don't absolutely. have to that. <laughs> Look at the diagram. And once Easy Army is out, it will tell you if you're uh, if you're are because I mean, how many of us really look at these charts? Or I mean, we know what they are, but in the end, Easy Army is such an awesome tool. If you, as you're building your list, if you're missing something, it will let you know, and then you can adjust things. So don't stress if you you know you didn't get all that right away. Like Steve said, uh, there's a, a a picture in the book, and then uh, my guess is Easy Army will be updated and then we'll be back to using that as a, a our force developer takeaways ogre player is that you know in the past i had more unlocks in it than i could ever possibly use and i think this is now just a way for me as an ogre player to have to think about it a little bit more it's not not it's not a no-brainer anymore and i think that's fine I don't. I don't really think it's going to negatively impact me all that much. The biggest changes in terms of irregular units are treated as troops. So there's more irregular units. Yes. Let's. They let, still. They, they still need to be unlocked. They don't unlock other units. But if you've got uh, a horde of infantry or a legion of large cavalry, you can take four troops. So all that worry about oh, I can't take you know four sniffs or whatever or, or eight sniffs. Yeah, you can. You just take yep. two two hordes and there's there's your eight troops of whatever. So exactly. Exactly. And let's and let's touch on a, a regular. I think number one, there's a lot more regular units in the game now. I think pretty much units that were alpha strike units, or even a lot of units that were just taken as allies in other people's armies, have been uh, designated irregular. And as Steve just said, they have to be unlocked, just like a, they're, they're treated like a troop, and they don't unlock anything else. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because in the past there were a few irregular units. Now, every army, like even the Ogres, there's four or five irregular units in, in that list. A couple more unit types. There's limited units, which uh, is kind of an expansion of, um, you know, the legendary unit, right? Well, I think and I, I think with the limited unit, you'll also see it in, like, upgrades. You know, like, for example, when we were talking before about the um, upgrading the Paladin Foot Guard to Paladin Defenders, that's a limited one. So you can only upgrade one of those units with that buff so the other note is that allies can't take irregular units um you can't take irregular units as allies so you can't take your alohi as allies you can't take um ogre shooters there's a limited number it limits some of those uh get around that people we're using right so like as you mentioned with the sort of clarifying of allies and also sort of i guess the other really big change and how you make lists is that there is now something called a theme list so essentially all of the lists in the main rule book are master lists and then in future supplements they're going to introduce theme lists a la sort of the historical 
version two. These theme lists are sort of flavors on their main master list. And what a theme list will allow you to do is a theme list will let you take certain units from their parent master list along with specific units that are for that particular theme. So a couple things, you can only use one theme at a time when you're working off of a master list. Like if, you're, if your master list has two or three themes, you got to pick one that you want to use. Units in the theme list can't be taken as allies. And when you're using the theme list, you can't take units from your master list as allies either. So basically it's, it's saying when you're doing the theme list, you can only take specific units from the master list. So I know there isn't really any of these themes lists yes, but yet, but they've hinted at them coming in um, uh, Armies of Panathor. And then also moving forward, I think having theme lists is a great way to add in factions without having to do as big a release. You can just add a couple of units and make a new theme. Um, so it should be adding more diversity, adding more options for list building. So it should be pretty cool, I think. Well, somebody want to jump in and talk about magic items? So with, with magic items in the third edition, they're mostly the same. There's just a few overarching changes to how they can be used. One of the main changes is when you get a ranged attack or spell granted by an item, it is no longer um, affected by elite. If you have elite ranged on your hero or unit, it does not transfer to the magic item. And when an item refers to normal ranged attacks, it cannot be used with spells. So that's a big change. Um, there are two distinct sections of magic items, common items, which are just for every unit, heroes and units, and then heroic artifacts that can only be taken by hero infantry, hero cav, hero monster, chariot, titan, etc. And then one of the new uh, changes that I think is going to be really helpful is tiered points costs. So certain items will cost different amounts based on whether they're for a regiment or a horde or a legion. So when you take it with a, a troop or a regiment, it'll be one cost. And for hordes and legions, it'll be a higher price. So that's specifically, you know, stuff like elite, vicious, brew of strength, uh, and brew of sharpness. So those all have tiered points costs now. So you can actually take them for regiments at a slight discount, which will be helpful for cavalry regiments and such. Most of the items, the, the cheaper items have uh, stayed in the list. Uh, no more Kevinar's Flying Hammer, though. Sorry, Mike Rossi. And there are, there's a few new ones as well. So there's one where Liliana's Tears, where you are no longer affected by Dread, Shattering, or Brutal, as well as a few, you know, one that adds Wild Charge, uh, one that helps with aura, increase aura distances. We've already seen Jesse's Boots of Striding in the Leaks. Blood of the Old King is back, but at a, you get to reroll. You get to Elite and Vicious for one turn, but every reroll causes a point of damage now, so that's a big change. Some of the other changes are for the items that give you a magical spell, such as Surge, Heal, or Lightning Bolt. They give you the spell or add to an existing spell of that ver of the same spell, which is a combining two previous items into one. And then Wings of Honey Maze we saw in the leaks that 
it gives you fly speed 10 for individuals, but at minus one defense. Quite a few items have been removed. I think, you know, Banner of the Griffin and the shooting ones are going to have the biggest effect. Those are the most common ones taken. But overall, I think it's just a cleaned up version of what we had and less duplication and a little more, I think, the, the pricing tiers on the big offensive spe- uh, items will be really helpful going forward. MSU is really a thing now, isn't it? Because you can actually um, get those cheaper items, things like uh, Elite Vicious, they're still in there. But if you're going to pay to put them 30 points on a horde or 20 points on a regiment, you might think about a really punchy regiment to shield off and then bring into, you know, maybe with some wild charge or something, you can get some really cool stuff. Sharpness being 35 points for a regiment size, I think that's that's a really strong argument to put that on a regiment, right? So imagine a regiment of, let's say, Soul Reaver Cavalry with Brewer Sharpness. That's 35 points as opposed to 45 points on a horde or something. So it really makes you think about how you're composing your lists. I think it gives you a lot more options for those high attack regiments now. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we'll see a lot, like you mentioned it, on uh, Cav regiments or... uh, uh, berserker style infantry regiments i think that when you're min maxing points those items are going to be re- really nice um i also like the idea you mentioned it of the the bonus to spells also giving the spell itself is can, is interesting like shroud of the saint either giving heal three or plus three heal to someone who already has heal so not only does that give you more flexibility, but it can add some like cool storytelling or a cool narrative in your in building your army, you know. So I think it's it's uh, interesting. I think uh, one item that I liked for a ten, uh, one of the cheaper items, Conjurer Staff. Yes, it lets you re re roll one spell dice. It was always you know there always was kind of like. I have a cheap caster. I would love to give them an item. You know, what do I, you know, there wasn't really like anything interesting really. Mm-hmm. So that to me uh, stood out uh, as like one of the cool new items. And then I get to that point, I think losing the fire, the fire heart amulet to cast two, two spells once per game is going to be a big change. Cause I know that was a pretty common one for you know, your, your utility caster who had like, you know, Bane chant and heal or Bane chant and lightning bolt. Yeah, that was sort of like your default default cheap item to give a spellcaster. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and how cool. frustrating is it when you when you fail one bane chant dice, right? So that's that's yeah. the place. Banner of the Griffin not being in, I think, it is massive. I, I've lost count of the amount of armies I've seen in Banner of the Griffin. So you know, typically your fifteen seventeen ogre horde was always a sixteen eighteen, and actually yeah. rally is less available. I think across the rulebook, it's far more specialized rally. I think we're going to see a lot less of that. So bumping up cheaper hordes to be those kind of really meaty kind of tar pit units is is less available for people now which kind of adds to the more dynamic nature of the combat game yeah there's a general decrease in nerve across the board so i think in with banner of the griffin gone that you know i think that overall reducing the you know resiliency of a lot of units or a lot of builds that were in second edition we, we've done magical artifacts now going into magic itself. There's been some changes to the magic system. Um, I think one of the biggest things is now spellcasters only come with either the spells that they have inherently or purchasable spells that are actually listed on their profile. So no longer are if you can take a spell, you have access to all the spells. It's, it's specific to your profile. 
which makes sense to me. Cleans it up again. We're seeing more more uh, cleanliness and spellcasting. Um, they did a job to clarify your allied units and core units and how you can't cast spells from uh, one to the other. Um, just in general, there's a great and we won't go through it here. Again, this book is beautiful, so you should buy it. Um, in the spell section, they have a very clear chart that has spells, ranges, targets effects modifiers so it will state clearly which spells are affected by cover which are affected by stealthy or and or both um some spells also uh, uh it will tell you targets like what can you target um you know they've talked a little bit about spell casters now have tiers uh, which again is more future proofing uh so later on maybe they'll say something like certain spell casters with certain tiers get this that or the other um some key changes i think on um uh, spells uh heal can now be cast on yourself the targets are you know ally or self so that's very interesting that's new we've had a couple of new spells added some of which uh have already gone over one that i thought was interesting is bastion which is a, a unique spell, uh, sort of a la legendary, meaning that you can only have one in your army. And Bastion basically is similar to what we've had uh, previously, but essentially you can either cast it on yourself or an ally, and that unit then gets extra nerve and becomes rallying. So very similar to the the neutral Living Legend spell from last edition, just sort of kind of rebranded. But I like that spell. You know, as we talk about lack of Banner of the Griffin is gone, now we have something that maybe can take up with that. Um, Icy Breath, which we've talked about as far as uh, 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 putting Frozen, we have Enthrall, which is sort of the reversed Wind Blast, pulling stuff to you. Um what do you guys think? Uh, I, I, I think I like the spells, but for me what I like most is how they're organized in the rule book of being very clearly stated what they can do, what they can't do, uh, modifiers, etc. What are your guys' thoughts? I, I love it. I think especially the unique spells, um, there's only five of them now, right? I don't remember how many legendaries we had, but we had more than five. And I think your comment about you know in the modifier section of the table, it clearly says – what it's affected by, whether it's affected by cover or stealthy. Um, I think that's really interesting. Now, yeah. unless you have access to it in your profile, you're not taking it. And I think that really increases the thematic nature of the list. I think some people aren't going to like the kind of reduced flexibility, but what it means is that you're not just having Blizzard in every single list, uh -huh. right? Because you can't take it, full stop. It's not in your list. It's not your theme. So if you wanted to be... Um, uh, a, a martyr's prayer list only Basileans have martyr's prayer they're the only ones actually um, so it increases the, you're only going to see that when you play Basileans so actually that kind of we're heading more towards those race specific spells that we've seen you know that people like in, in, in some ways from Warhammer but I think it does add to the thematic element of it um, and I think we're going to see more of those race specific spells going forwards in terms of the cast of tears and I think that's kind of an interesting way of playing it yeah, and I just think they've just rolled in all the FAQ knowledge that they've developed and just like it's so much more clear and laid out logically and it's just a much cleaner system, which is great. It's a great clean reset of the spells. I love it. All right, moving on. Uh, we're going to talk about scenarios now. 
Um, much like everything in the book, it's they're very similar, but slightly different. Nine of the scenarios from COC-19 made it in. So we have pillage, loot, push, dominate, invade, control, kill, raise, and plunder. With Out of the nine old scenarios, the main change is that invade is now units only have to be majority over the center line to score. So that'll make it a little easier for your you know slower dwarf players and other foot-slugging armies. Um, the three scenarios that were removed were ransack, occupy, and scavenge. And the three new ones, two of which incorporate the new bluff tokens, are fool's gold, smoke and mirrors, and salt the earth. Salt the earth is like scour from 2017, basically pillage where you can destroy objectives if you control them. Loot tokens are back as well. With loot tokens, units carrying them cannot be targeted by wind blast and surge just like before, and as well, they cannot be targeted by enthrall. They also still lose nimble and fly, but now they also lose wild charge. With respect to bluff tokens, um, there are 10 of them, five for each uh, player. Two will have a value of zero, two will have a value of one, and one will have a value of two. And in the two scenarios that use them, only the player putting the bluff counter down will know what the value is. And in each scenario, they're revealed in different ways. In Fool's Gold, after they've been deployed like regular objectives, uh, after at the end of round three, all of the bluff counters are flipped over to reveal their value. And then they're worth the value that is on the, the token. In Smoke and Mirrors, at the end of each round, each player flips one bluff counter over at a time. So similar concept, slightly different application, giving you a little bit more, a little different strategies for each one. I think the bluff tokens are going to add a lot more depth and a little more like uncertainty when you're uh, deploying and placing your objectives. I think it's going to be a good change overall for scenarios to shake it up away from the, the typical scenarios we've had for the last few years yeah i mean i've, I've only played uh, obviously once or twice with them but uh, they're really fun i have to say bluff tokens it makes a big difference apart from the fact that it's really hard to remember what you put down but um, it, it can yeah. really change the whole sweep of a battlefield and i think that's quite nice and even the one that was it salt the earth where you which was uh the old 2017 slightly amended yes. it's, it's, it's quite strategic where you can take off a, a, an objective counter rather than controlling it if you're going to lose that fine take it off and then you can move on something else that's pretty cool as well it's a little bit more strategy and i like mm -hmm. the fact they've taken off ones like scavenge which were, which were really common and everyone had to have it explained like three or four times because they were just really confusing right so i think it's a nice change it's a nice reset a nice kind of uh, update yes yeah, the same but different a little right. update but nothing drastically out, out of the ordinary. I, I think the bluff tokens are going to add a whole new dynamic to the game, though, because, I mean, it is essentially like a pillage, right? But mm -hmm. the fact that you, the, the the values are variable and only you know what you've put down, um, it's going to add a whole new strategic element to the game that, that we haven't had before. I think it's going to be really cool. A new addition. Nice addition to the game. All right. Well, that is a lot of rules, and we've been talking for a long time. So why don't we go ahead, slide into a quick little break, and then we'll come back on the other side. And we're going to go into my favorite section of the book, Background and Fluff. Do you want to play a stable system without having to buy multiple books or supplements? Do you want to avoid codex creep? Are you tired of having to buy the latest shiny new toy to stay competitive? Then Kings of War is for you. 
all armies and factions are released simultaneously and reviewed at the same time on an annual basis. No faction is a red-headed stepchild or is overpowering enough to ruin the game. As mentioned earlier, faction balance is very good, which combined with a solid core framework provides a satisfying strategic gameplay without overburdening a player, too many special rules and exceptions. From a modeling point of view, Kings of War is a hobbyist's dream. We have the freedom to use any mini from any manufacturer around the world to make thematic armies which we used to only dream of. In addition, having the choice to either multi-base my models or you know, still stick to single model basing allows me to have flexibility in how I can use my collection of miniatures. I have seen fantastic looking armies that use Age of Sigma models alongside Reaper minis, standing side by side with Mantic products and historicals from Perry miniatures. I have seen folks do some amazing conversion work that combines the best from two or more worlds. Personally, I don't consider myself to be a very good or proficient hobbyist, you know, being more interested in the gaming side of things, but even I can see that this is a resounding success from the freedom inherent in the Kings of War system that fosters and encourages such creativity in the community. It is background and fluff time, and I am all excited about this because there is so much more fluff in this new book. Unlike uh, Kings of War 2nd Edition, the fluff section does not start off the Kings of War 3 book. It's nestled in the middle, so you get to read the rules first, get the fluff, and then you get into the army section, and that even has more fluff. So I kind of like the way that the flows right now. So, And there is so much expanded fluff. We're going to have a great time in the narrative workshop. The background fluff runs from page 74 to page 229. Super exciting. So, But uh, the whole fluff section starts off with a little overview of Panathor. Um, a little brief introduction. Uh, the coolest part of this section is the description of the map of the world that we keep seeing all over the internet and the pictures with the magical quill. Um, the map is actually made from the hide of the ancient king of the mammoths. And no, its name was not Jesse. So, but <laughs> so just a little quick, quick intro there. And then we go into, into the beginning, and this is kind of a new section. This describes the old gods. There were seven of them. They were known as the primogentors, I think. I'm sure I slaughtered that, but... This section outlines the creation of the three noble races, elf, dwarf, and man. I really, really enjoyed this section, and I hope you will as well. If you've listened to our narrative workshop episode that we just recently released, you will have a heads up on what race is responsible for when things go awry. <laughs> so, but uh, and then on page eighty, and then on page eighty and eighty-one, there's a really cool map of historic Panathor before the great. Uh, flood happens, so which is awesome. You need to take a look at that. It's kind of cool to compare the two maps and see which parts of it went underwater and how the how the map changed and everything else like that. And then um, the time of light comes in, and this is where the Celestians arrive um, and kind of take over from the old gods and kind of push them aside. And this is uh, during the period, and it is during this period that the tragedy, the Phanulian Mirror, takes place which then takes us to the God War. Again, this story has been expanded in the Kings of War 3rd Edition rulebook. The Celestians are then split between their shining and wicked halves, and the great battle begins across Panathor. And of course, 
the same thing happens. Domovar and Oskin battle, and there's a great picture spread on pages 90 and 91. You just absolutely have to check out. And then, of course, the Abyss is created during the end of the God War. Um, but I'm not spoiling the story. You guys are going to have to buy the book and read it. So, but, uh, uh, but that's how the Abyss is created. And again, that the fluff in the God War section has been expanded and modified a little bit, so it's really, really worth the read. I really, really enjoyed that. And then they brought us into the Time of Ice. And this is when the Wicked One Winter has escaped the Abyss and has started cooling down the atmosphere in Panathor. And then once she's discovered, she unleashes her full power upon the world. Valandor, of course, best winter in combat, but in doing so, the Great Flood began, and much of the old world was lost lost beneath the unnatural floods of winter's final gift. So, And then we move from the time of ice into the age of conflict. With winter seemingly vanquished, and with the world changed once again, the noble and lesser races alike begin to rebuild. And this was the setting and the time frame that Kings of War 2nd Edition was set in. And then it's noted that 1,200 years after the war with winter, Panathor was plunged into its darkest period since that cataclysmic age. And this is where the Edge of the Abyss campaign takes place. And then the Abyss is flooded. So that's also mentioned in the fluff. And then it's also noted that eventually the floodwaters started to dissipate and the extent of the damage was really revealed. The tortured lands around the Abyss had swelled in many directions and the great rent in the world had opened far into new territory. The Abyssal Dwarfs have raised a new fortress city, and the Wicked Ones have turned their attention towards the City of Chill. And this is where our Kings of War 3rd Edition games are going to take place in the yet-to-be-written history of Panathor. So very, very exciting. And then on page 96 and 97, you see the new expanded map of modern-day Panathor, so you can check that out. One of the neat things is they also added in the fluff section a thing of magic. So they have a cool page of fluff there. And then they put in a really cool chart about the magic in Panathor. This is kind of reminiscent a little bit of D&D. It talks a little bit about the planes of existence and the different elements and stuff like that and the uh, different schools of magic. And it's really, really cool. You should definitely check that out. And then starting on page 100... The book goes into the background of the 14 armies that are in this core rulebook. The armies are presented in the sections of good, neutral, and evil. And really cool maps and feature arts are available for each of the factions, which is super cool. And there are four good armies, Basileia, the Dwarfs, the Elves, and the Northern Alliance, which I thought was a little surprising. There are four neutral armies, the Forces of Nature, Ogres, the Trident Realm, and the Kingdoms of Men. And I guess we got to finish it off because everybody did a little math in their head. There are six evil armies, and I personally blame Rob Berman for this, but uh, the six evil armies are the Abyssal Dwarfs, the Empire of Dust, Forces of the Abyss, Goblins, Orcs, and the Undead. So the good guys have got lots of bad guys to fight. So, but uh, And gone in the fluff section are the descriptions of the various prominent features and you know that were in the map of mantica and stuff like that i'm assuming we're going to get tons of that fluff in the role-playing game and in the novels and stuff like that and and as i mentioned before there is even more fluff for each army at the beginning of each army list speaking of army lists rob why don't you go ahead and take us into the army list i mean 
we could go over them all in detail, but it would probably take us another five hours and right, there's right. any more well, podcasts to come. So Yeah, so as Jeremy alluded to in the opening, we're actually working on quick Army update snapshots. So we'll be knocking those out in quick succession. And, and in those, we will go in a little bit more detail. Um, today, I thought it would be fun just to go through the some of our favorite things, some of the things that jumped off the page, changes that we saw were like that we thought were very interesting. Steve, do you want to start us off? Sure thing. So um, I've been kind of I've been working for a little while in the background on an undead army, right? So the first thing I went to was undead. Um, sorry, elves, but I'll come to you. I'll come to you. Um, so the first thing I took a look at was um, the heroes, right? Because my previous build, and I've been talking about my build with Jeremy because Jeremy's like my undead expert that I go to for everything. So my previous list was pretty simple. So the first thing I did was try to kind of port that list over to version three, um, and it didn't quite work. And so some of those heroes have changed quite dramatically so previously um everyone took ilona right everyone took ilona because she was just so versatile she was just so strong and she had that great formation right but i really think that we're going to see the return of morgoth off the scale on this in this particular um iteration of the game because morgoth is i'll be frank with you guys he is broken he is broken um but he is so much fun to play with so yeah <laughs> there he is and he is sick right Okay, so uh, Morgoth, he's um, he's uh, speed ten, he's defense five, which is fine. Uh, he's got like one attack. He's a fourteen sixteen, um, and he comes with a whole bunch of special rules, as you would expect from somebody. He's got whole pages of fluff in the book. It's really kind of he's kind of one of. I went to the Mantic Open Day a little while ago in the spring of this year, and I and I asked Ronnie Renton. I said, "Where's Morgoth? What's happened to Morgoth?" Um, and they kind of went, oh, he's on holiday, and there's a bit of a joke about it. Boy, is he back. Um, so he comes with Dread, Fly, Individual. He's Regen 5+. He's very inspiring. He comes with Bane Chant 3, Drain Life 9, Mind Fog 3, and Surge 10. Okay, he's 230 points. But he has a special ability called Unholy Levitation, which basically is the boots of levitation. So he can move at the double and make range attacks as if he had advanced that turn, which means you can take this guy and fly him 20 and drain life nine things from behind them. It is gross um, and a lot of fun. So uh, Morgoth is my MVP of the entire book. He is utterly appropriate for his legend, and I can't wait to play with him more until they nerf him in the next update. Well, didn't they actually did kind of nerf him since the second edition, though, because now in the second edition, you were able to give somebody regen, right? One of his chosen units correct so you don't have that anymore no but i'll take a inbuilt boots and levitation and drain life nine over that if i'm being honest frankly i really think his unholy levitation with the fact that he's speed 10 fly with dread and the fact that his drain light his his spells are more based on board placement uh being that like and especially in uh, an edition that's probably going more towards grinding being able to fly him to give dread and extra heal damage to your main battle line and essentially wherever you want to put him, um, I think I think he is going to be very good. Inside, I think you will struggle to find undead armies without him, and I think Elona is going to find because Elona is fifty points more. I think she's going to find uh, hard to find a place in most armies compared to him. He is amazing, but then yeah, think- you know. 
it feels very strong, right? It feels very strong to have this character, but it's only in relative strength to the RVR. I think all of these main Rubik armies have elements of them make you go, what? That's so broken. But every army has it. So there's, it's kind of like a, there is a down, downgrading of some elements, but there's sick things you can play with, which is just going to be so much fun. Yeah, I think with Alona too, like the old formation giving her plus one move with Fearless really just pushed her over the top. And now, I mean, now she's 14, 16. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Right. You can waver I mean, her. You can waver her. Um, and, and now with the devastated rule, I don't know. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Hey, so, there is no slouch, to be fair. In this no, no, she she's not. Well, strong. she's 280 points, though. I mean, that's that's quite quite a bit. Uh, for me, one unit that stood out, and again, I think in uh, there's so much just juicy, deep, tasty stuff to go through. I think your instinct is to go to the list first that you're playing, right? Or that you're uh, into. So for me, I, I, I went to Basilean. And for me, one that one unit that jumped off is uh, Samacris. I think is really really good. Um, it's a it's a great sort of similar to the Phoenix, but uh, I think it's filling a, a, another roles for so for Samacris. She's got Crushing Strength one, Fly. She has Inspiring. Like we know that the Phoenix is losing Inspiring, Iron Resolve. Nimble, Regen, 5+, and then she has the Radiance of Life, so she's got the the healing aura. Plus, she comes with Fireball 8 and Heal 5, but the Fireball 8 has Piercing 1. So essentially, uh, for the same cost as a Phoenix, you're getting a unit that doesn't have the little slightly upgraded combat potential as the new Phoenix, but with that, you get Inspiring, plus you get Fireball with Piercing, um, and I think Basilians are moving towards a strong infantry center anyway. So when you think about these auras, it's almost like they get free spells. So essentially, any time that she moves, I'm getting a free area of effect heal two spell. Because when you think about it, one point of damage is the average that would be healed on heal two. So let's say I want to move her and fireball eight with piercing. She's also doing a heal two six inch aoe spell from an inspiring defense five dash 15 regen five base so i think she is really boss she's also defense five over the phoenix which is great and shorter so she can hide her so much more survivable i think you're going to see a lot of people who are maybe taking her with the phoenix or she is going to be a good choice for those people who don't have a phoenix so and and i have a really cool angel model for my ur elohi which i'm just going to use for samacris so for me you know three paladin foot guard regiments one with the defender giving the elite upgrade backed by samacris behind i mean that's just like oh juicy so that was one of the units that jumped up jumped out at me from um uh basilan and then the change of gur panthers going to more uh, uh a la beast pack was another great uh uh change um but there's just so much juicy stuff but that's what sort of jumped out at me well of course i didn't go for the uber overpowered units or anything like that i just went to uh see some things that i thought were kind of cool the number one thing that stuck out to me was in the orc list i finally got skulk outrider so i got something that's moving around (laughs) so i'm pretty happy about that uh they're calvary now um as an option and which I think was very needed by the orcs. And they've only got an 18-inch range with those short bows, but they've got steady aim, nimble, and crushing strength one. 
So I thought that was kind of cool for 105 points, height three. They're only at 10, 12, but you know, hey, I'll take them. I thought that that was pretty cool. So, and then the other one, I just, you know, just to kind of highlight some of the tweaks that happened. Uh, as you know, I'm trying to work on my um, Imperial Dwarf Army, and I'm trying to include a bunch of Iron Watch rifles. So I was flipped to the rulebook real quick to take a look at those guys. And uh, basically, they're the same, except for the uh, regiment got five points cheaper, and the um, horde got ten points more expensive. So I don't know if I'd uh, be doing that. But they lost reload, and they picked up pot shot. And as Rob mentioned earlier, you know that means they're going to be hitting on sixes at half the dice. So mm-hmm. it's not exactly that's, that's great though, right? Because if you had if you had a unit like that that had reload that was sitting there and didn't have a target. Now you at least can move them, and yes, with the horde you're only going to get ten attacks, but hey, it's better than no attacks. Absolutely, it made them com- from completely useless to at least they can do something. So you know they're no more goth, but uh, hey, I'll be happy to have them. I, I think I'm going to proceed by doing that army. So, well, if also if you wanted to run a dwarven gun line with artillery. Um, and you didn't want to get one of the more expensive hordes to unlock. If you take your, are they are they regular the the, the rifles? They are yeah. not. They are not. They're they not. are not. So in which case you can take a horde of them, and they're not just a useless shooting horde that sits at the back and can't hit anything, right? Because then you can move them and pot shot if you need to. So, uh, you know, an artillery shooting line of dwarves is once again a possibility that I not like. No, it's good. It's going to be super nasty. I mean, when you think about, oh, I'm hitting on sixes, think about all the things that you could do to punish this unit. Oh, I'm going to fly out of your arc. So then you have to change to face me, and then I'll charge you next turn. Now, like, if I do that, you can move, and you're still hitting me at half dice on sixes, but they have piercing two. So, I mean, what hits you get, you're getting through on damage. So I think this unit went from... Uh, not very playable to i think it's very good especially with some of the other dwarf changes as well uh these right it's definitely going to be a very worthwhile unit so personally i'm pretty excited about frost fangs and that has little to do with the fact that i have five of them on my painting desk right now but uh i've always like always liked the idea of dire fangs in the previous edition but movement six kind of made me sad so now that they're movement seven with wild charge and the northern alliance it makes them a lot more useful you can use them like cav as opposed to like large infantry the characters are pretty exciting because now large cavalry characters have nimble where they didn't in the last edition and i always thought that that was a a bit strange with large infantry characters getting nimble and then, then chariot characters also had nimble so I'm a big fan of large Cav, and I'm looking forward to having a lot of Frost Fangs going forward. Well, on my end, there's a few things that caught my eye. The first one, no more Baby Giant anymore. We only have the Titan version, which means now I have to rebase my Giant, but not too bad. Uh, could be worse. Um, but the thing that really was like, oh, this is beautiful, are the Fight Wagons in the Orc list. Um, they are irregular, which, okay. And why are they irregular? Well, because now they're fearless. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I'm excited. I can't wait. A legion of fight wagons, you know, with, thir- with their 30 attacks and a crushing strength one with a dash 20 nerve. I just can't wait. Defense five. I just can't. I mean, I was already using fight wagons, and their biggest bane of existence was they got wavered a lot, right? Uh, especially from shooting and stuff. 
and, and then we get chaffed up. So now it's like, all right, well, I'm just going to push them forward and plow through and kill them to the man. And I, and I, I really so. I really like it. I think orcs have just become so much more playable. And I'm really looking forward to seeing more orcs. And so we didn't see many orcs. Maybe it's different over there. But over here, I've never played against orcs on, a, on, a, on an actual table. And I think those legions of green just look amazing on the table. And with all these kind of upgrades, I really think orcs are a very, very playable, dangerous army now. I mean, those big hordes with their giant charge range, how can you avoid that? You just can't. It's going to be yeah. amazing. Well, and, you know, Mark talked about the Skulk Outriders, but they've also got Skulk Chariots now. So, and they've got another unit called Young Axe. There's like a lot of different units that have been added that just add some creativity, you know, some inspiration. It's it's really got me excited about playing orcs. So, uh, yeah, those, those are a couple of my big ones. Uh, obviously, when I talk about ogres, I've got to lament the fact that Namagrok's no longer there, right? He was he was a staple in my army, uh, and I used to love him to death, but so be it. Now we just go with the standard warlock, uh, and we've already touched on that shooters are irregular. Which it doesn't really affect me. I don't play that many. I haven't played shooters very much. But uh, the big thing is, you know, we've mentioned before, you can't ally in a regular units. So you will not be seeing shooters. You will not be seeing Alohi uh, in anybody else's list, which I think is great. I think one of the cool things just in general with like list construction is the large infantry, large cav unlocking. You can do one monster and one titan. So that mm-hmm. kind of opens up some w- neat options for like forces of nature and northern alliance where you can they are a couple of the few lists that have titans and monsters that are similar so you can do like three cavern dwellers and three frost giants with just three hordes or you could do three greater earth elementals with three other greater elementals in forces of nature with just three hordes of monstrous infantry. So it's like it opens up some very thematic monster mash type lists, which I think will be neat to see on the table anyway. I think one of the things they said with Nomogorok there, because Nomogorok had a model, right? No, it was just it was the regular model. Mm -hmm. Where, Where they said things are missing, it doesn't mean they're gone. It just means they're saving them for a future expansion. Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we may see the return of Nomogorok in a future expansion. Uh, the same for some of the other stuff that's kind of mysteriously disappeared off the table. It's not that it's gone. Um, and I do think it's sad that he was gone, but he was, you know, a little bit too good, frankly. Well, if he's in every army, any any model that's ever any unit that's in every army without question, you've got to at least ask yourself, is it is it too good for the points? You know, oh, that's so. going to. Well, that's going to be Morgoth, so from the sounds of it. <laughs> well, to be fair, Don't though. Don't take my Morgoth away from yeah, me. You know, to be fair, though, Morgoth, before Lady Ionia and the formations and stuff, there were plenty of people that played the Morgoth spam, right? Um, I mean, it's, that's he, – he may have gotten a little bit better, but the reality is it's – yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's the, – the sky is falling with him. The other thing you got to recognize is in the fluff – I mean, we're about 10, 12 years into the future. So, you know, your good boy, Damagrok, just might have bought it somewhere along the line, and he's just not around anymore. Let's look at the Abyssal Dwarf list. Holy cow. I just... Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, definitely those golems. They needed a ranged attack because they weren't appallingly powerful beforehand. What is going on? It's going to be a spammed army. Is dead. Things have got more expensive, so it's going to get more elite, but... Wow, well, they're going to be dead. Gargoyles right? being a regular are great, right? That means, right. you know, we're not going to have any gargoyles in, as allies either. Yeah. I think Abyssal Dwarves also have, like, feel like they have more auras than other armies. They have at least three that I can think of off the top of my head. 
So you can get some like wild charging strider, brutal immortal guard regiments like all over the board, which I think will be neat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, when looking at the Night Stalker list, uh, the one that jumped out for me is that Phantoms are irregular. Um, so that makes it very difficult to do the all Phantom list. You know, uh, I, I think it's impossible, really. Right, but instead of that, what you're going to have is the uh, Lightning Bolt Spam. Lightning Bolt Spam is once again a thing in the Night Stalker list. Yeah, there's some, there's some individuals and monsters, all of whom have got either Wind Blast, damaging Wind Blast, or Enthrall, or Lightning Bolt. And basically, they're going to be just chucking you all over the battlefield. I think it's going to be a gross thing to face because you're going to have to be so cagey. And then you've got these guys just flying behind you and pushing you here, pulling you there. Lightning Bolts, like 24 devastating right it's almost if rob you've had recent experience with phantom spam <laughs> I've, I've played it a little bit um even locally we had a guy uh, a guy daniel he built an all phantom list i was like holy crap it, you, you couldn't you couldn't do anything about it because they all flied they had surge there was it's sort of the dustin howard thing with his empire dust there's just nothing you can do he's gonna get into your your flanks right so bad so Banshees are 145 points with Enthrall 5 and Windblast 5, both of which damage. And you can pair them up with all of these. Um, uh, where are they? All of these. Um, fucking sorry. I've which are you the- talking about, Steve? Mind Screeches. Oh, so Mind Screeches. Pair- you can pair them up with all of these Mind Screeches, which are a height 5 monster with Lightning Bolt 6, Mind Fog 6 and Windblast 6. You know, board control is really going to be part of the the mm-hmm. Night Stalkers play, which is really interesting. And again, thematic, right? Because that's how you'd imagine these horrors will be there. If you imagine a waking dream where suddenly you're not where you thought you were and you're feeling a bit wounded, that's 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 just the yeah. perfect theme for that list. It's great. Mm-hmm. A couple of things jumped out to me on uh, the Trident Realm list. Uh, Placoderms, now you can't take in a horde, but oh my, Bejesus Fishman Regiment is unbelievable. Uh, 14, 16, defense 6, speed 5, 15 attacks for 165 points with Phalanx. I mean, that's just crazy. Do some checkerboard deployment with Placoderms and Thule, mm-hmm. who are also really cheap in the, in the regiment size, but with 20 attacks hitting on threes. Mm-hmm. Um... I think we're going to see a lot of just, uh, I, I, I think we had unit strength in the past, but now I think MSU is going to be a real thing on some of these lists. The, the River Guard being a regular is really interesting to me as well. But you've got River Guard Dam Busters, which are large cav, they're not irregular, and they've got Enthrall built into them. And they're flying, they're one of the few units that are fly nimble. They're only speed seven, but they do have fly and nimble as a large cav unit. And, and Strider. And Strider. And Trident, Trident Realm are neutral, so you can ally in Dambusters to any army now. Hello. That's a heavy unit, though, because you need three of them, right, for a regiment? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm used to heavy units, though. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, overall, though, I'm, I'm super – just when you look through the book, I'm just super excited about the changes. I, um, yes, there's the occasional, hey, you have to rebase. Typically with the monsters, it's not that big a deal. Um, I, and I honestly don't think there's very few armies that I think are I'm gonna air quote here invalidated. I mean, I mean, obviously if you had an all phantom army, yeah, you can't run that. But there's so many other options. I think it, it's really gonna st- it's really gonna be a nice boost 
to creativity and army construction, and it, it resets the puzzle. Some armies have changed. Like I would say when you're thinking about, well, what are the armies who have seen the most changes? I think elves are, are different now. I was going to say elves, yeah. Because you you're, you see the change in, in uh, archers, but they pick up maybe, maybe one of the best, if not the best, infantry combat horde in the game, Palace Guard. 22, 24, 25 attacks on threes with inborn crushing strength one and elite. You bane chant these guys, 25 attacks on threes with elite and crushing two. Oh boy. And did you see, you might have seen in my battle report, I charged them off a hill. So they were, and they were bane chanted into a horde of ogre palace guard. It was awful. It was awful. And then also they pick up, uh, elves pick up, uh, battle cat swarms, which I think are, are fun and interesting as a, a, another chaff piece. And then as you saw it in Steve's report, regiments of silver breeze, which are regular, which are regular. Yeah. Yeah. But you just put some palace guard hordes and then get loads of palace. Uh, oh, sure. You know, people are saying, oh, yeah. elves, elves shooting spam is dead. Nah. No, it's not. Sorry. Silver Breeze, still, Silver Breeze are still the best shooting unit in the game. Uh, I mean, in looking at this list, it feels like what an elf list should feel like, right? When you're thinking about elves as being like a little bit more expensive, but incredibly hard hitting. And it gives you options to where shooting is still good, but you can play like melee elves. Yeah, so I think elf, if we're thinking about what lists have changed the most, I think the elf list is one of those. But it's changed in really exciting, interesting ways. People aren't going to take hordes of archers anymore, and I'm glad, because it was boring. It was boring to see, and it was boring to... Oh, I'm going to play an elf list. I already know what it is, because because it's the same list again and again and again. And, you know, thank you to the few players that took interesting lists, frankly. This mm. is changing that. And there will be a lot of angst over it, but guys, get over it. There's just a different way of playing them now, and I think it's more interesting. They're definitely not weak, and I don't think any list in this book is weak. I think they yeah, all have yeah. different strengths. I- I honestly think, like, you know, we had lamented, like, gun lines and shooting. I think, you know, people might be overly sensitive, like the the elves, archers hitting on fives now. Realistically, the fact that there's very little ways to really improve the shooting, right? If you have a magical artifact or a spell that gives you a shooting attack, you don't get advantage of any inherent special rules. Like, if you have elite and you take the diadem of dragon kind, you don't get elite, for that attack um yeah. the fact that there's no bane chant the fact that hills don't uh see over things now and, and eliminate some forms of cover i mean it just it's sort of like there are so many ways that shooting has been brought back down to our base level i think it's been changed right i think shooting spam has been nerfed but actually i think combined arm shooting is better is way better than what it was before so i know a lot of armies now have viable four plus shooting like scouting units or war machines the variants on war machines got leveled out so i think the shooting abuse spam is not as good at what it was, but I think actually you might see more uh, shooting uh, front, uh, uh, sprinkled in into people's lists as just a combined arms element. Yeah, fewer shooting hordes, more shooting regiments and troops, and the, the lack of you know heart-seeking chant and Jar of the Four Winds will really change things. So a quick note uh, before we move on to the questions that people have sent us about historical lists. So um, 
we'll talk about them briefly. It's fair to say that, you know, they weren't a wildly popular choice of version two, but they definitely saw some good use, particularly things like Romans and some of the, you know, the skirmish factions, Mongols, right? And they were definitely coming a lot more frequent as real, as people realized those could be exploited towards the end of version two. Um, I think, Realistically, for version three, we're not going to see historicals in many tournaments to start with, because balancing historicals with the new list is a hell of a task and can't be underestimated. And, and I can't really see them easily playing alongside the new army list. There's just some there's too broken some of the combinations you can do with unnerved shooting and, and, and skirmishes and stuff. But the good news is we have seen because there was enough of a noise about it. It was asked enough times that Ronnie himself came on to a couple of forums and said, we've heard you. We understand you like to play your, you know, your Romans against undead and all these kind of fun story led. So we will look at it, but not until version three is done out and bedded in. So that commitment is there. But I think we just need to be a little bit patient. And, and I think that's all we really can say about that. Is there anything else you guys want to add? I'm glad that they're, they're you know, they, I'm, I'm glad they're going to keep it going. And I understand, completely understand why it will be down the road. So let's get into some questions. Steve, you want to roll us through here? Sure. So let's do some of these we've dealt with already, but we'll go through them really quickly. So Adam Story asked, well, I don't think we can answer this question. So he said, first impression, what is the most stupid OP net net listy build you can come up with? Go wild with it. There's going to be some folks doing it anyway. So have some fun and try to guess what we're going to be seeing from the power gamer folks. I think they're asking the wrong gamers. Jeremy, you're Mm. the most power gamer among us. What what do you reckon? (laughs) We're still so early, right? I think some of the units that we highlighted on today are probably going to be elements within those lists. Like Silver Breeze. Silver Breeze are, I've been, I've been hearing uh, some of the the units I've mentioned are are, are maybe being built into lists of uh, repetition. Uh, is all I can say. So you mean I, dojo? Uh, no comment. Uh, so, but we, I think we're going to see a, a, a lot of interesting stuff. I think that there's going to be multiple builds. I think in general, probably we're going to see more towards grind and survivability stuff like that. So, but I think it's pretty, it's pretty early uh, in the scheme of things to to really see, you know, uh, say for sure this is going to be. Netlisting, but I mean, I think there's some really strong factions. Basilea is strong. Northern Alliance is very strong, I think. I think Elves can still be strong, and sort of there's some uh, builds for them that might be pretty good, but we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I think the Night Stalkers might be in that list too. There's some really that changes there, and they lost Surge, but everything's fearless, and you can have a really, like a really high fearless Defense 5 army. You'll mm-hmm. just shadow hulks and butchers backed up, backed up by fiends and stuff. So I think that might be a really strong list as well. I don't think it's power game, but I was mentioning the the triple triple monster, triple titan lists will be fun to see. I think they might do really well against certain things, but I don't think they're going to be overall super powerful. I think Alex is absolutely right, and I think when I when I try to think of um, overbearing power gamers. I go straight to Adam Padley, right? <laughs> so, uh, what what list is Adam Padley building? Night Stalkers. So there you go. I think we might be going that way. Um, love you, Adam. So Keith Conroy says, with the changes we've seen so far, do we think dwarves will replace goblins as the gunline faction? That's his first of several. Yeah, I, I don't think honestly. I, people might try the new gun. I'm air quoting gunlines, but I really think with all the changes we've already highlighted. They're not as effective as as they once were, and I think 
I just don't I don't see like for certainly, you know, what used to be the breath weapon spam that is certainly taken a significant hit. Right. Um, I, I just I think people might try them, but I don't think I, I think because of the cost of dwarves, um, you're not playing into their strengths like combined arms is the way to go, I think. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, multiple small unit medium shooting. That's how shooting the gun lines are going to be approached. Now, I don't think you can do, well, someone will probably prove us wrong, but I don't think you can do the 200 shot lists or even 100 high quality shot lists anymore. I wouldn't be surprised, though, that we do see more dwarf shooting lists because that's a, a dwarf list that we never saw, really, right? In second edition, it was Brock's and Rock's, or if it, it was Kevin's uh, infantry dwarves. Yeah, and it was mostly because of the reload, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a problem, right? When you can't move your guys, that's an issue. So I think that's a huge change. The pot shot will be a huge change to dwarves specifically. We will see different archetypes of lists from that. And right? the war machines are a little more reliable now, So and cannons are might be worth it. So we might see some added, like, augmented shooting with that. I think what we're going to say is Mark Zielinski is going to be the king of the new Dwarven gun line, right? <laughs> see, even... we'll see. Actually, uh, I'm taking a look at my dwarfs right now. I'm kind of looking at those cannons because they have been on the shelf for a long time. So, <laughs> you know, they were completely not worth it. And, of course, I'm going to experiment with that. So, And I'm very, very excited about that Imperial Dwarf list. So I'm just trying to figure out how to put it together. You know, painting, that's my big thing. You heard it first here. Mark Zielinski wins Lone Wolf with Dwarf Shooting Spam. Absolutely. <laughs> Just need some new, new dice. <laughs> Keith also asks, which of the new monster sculpts Mantic has put out are our favorites? Night Stalker Shadowhawk is mine, and one of the reasons I'm starting the army, along with Herd for 3rd Edition. Chimera. Chimera is boss. Yeah, absolutely. I'm waiting for mine next week. Can't wait. It's unbelievable. What a, what, what a model that model is, man. I've just painted up the Gorblight, uh, which is um, one of the new monster sculpts from Vanguard. And it's tiny. It's a really tiny monster, but it's only supposed to be height three, so that's cool. It's actually a really nice little model, a little bit brittle, but I really like the sculpt, and it's quite characterful, so that's mine. Okay, so Brindley Smith says, um, only going by the first 14 factions, how would you rank them for top three, bottom three? Well, I think we kind of already did. In terms of the bottom, I have no way to know. But in terms of the top ones, you guys kind of hit on some of the like Northern Alliance is going to be a, I think a powerful list. I think Undead will be a powerful list, and I think Night Stalkers. Yeah, I think uh, Night Stalkers. I think Abyssal Dwarfs and Abyssals. I think will be exceptionally strong. Abyssals got hugely upgraded. They're so alpha striking for those guys that can do board control. Oh, not looking forward to that. That's that, that's my top three. Yeah, I think Elves, Night Stalkers, and then maybe Abyssal Dwarfs and Northern Alliance. I'll just say Basilea sucks and no one should play them so that I can uh, continue to be my own special snowflake. So they suck. Don't no one play that army. Not until 2020. I agree. <laughs> They're just awful. They're just horrible. Don't play them. I think Northern Alliance is the new Mickey Mouse of Kings of War. So they'll, they'll definitely uh, be a force to be reckoned with. I'm just wondering how many Northern Alliance armies we are actually going to see. And particularly since they are in the starter box. So, and I think Night Stalkers as well, and so I think that's why both of those factions are in the starter box. And, um, you know, hopefully you'll need to buy a couple of those starter boxes to fill out your army. So I, part of the plan there, I think. But I think they're definitely going to be strong. I'm really hoping to uh, pull the dwarfs out and uh, see how they do. So, But, uh, you know, we'll see. Okay, so uh, Billy Smith asked us, 
which faction surprised you the most? What what was something cool you didn't think you'd see? Uh, fearless fight wagons. <laughs> yeah. Speed 10, boots of levitation, Morgoth. Next. Skulks riding on cavalry and chariots. That's so cool. I think Basilea getting beast packs is actually pretty exciting for me. But I know Jeremy already said that. <laughs> Oh, it was great for me considering I have those already painted. And yeah. I'm so slow painting. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> you might actually finish your army this year. You know. Well, you know, and, and I always would take those because I just, well, I love the models and I have them painted even though they were overcosted before. But now they're great. So um, I don't know. This, this is just hard to answer because there is just so much cool stuff. It's like it's just really it's like oh that's cool over there it's like the shiny squirrel and it's like you're 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 just going uh, uh, crazy from back to back forth you know I thought something was cool revenants in undead defense five revenants in empires of dust defense four with crushing strength one so that's cool to see a difference in uh, some of those shared units having a little bit more flavor based on their faction. And do we do we mention by the way the Empire does have Revenant cavalry now? That is that's a really interesting tool for those guys. And also Revenant cavalry hordes and undead. That's actually pretty cool. Amazing value. That unit has some crazy value. Reven- Revenant cav and undead has always been great value for dash defense five nerve and that. Uh, horde continues that trend so and it's just cool a giant you know non won't stop horde of skeleton horsemen is thematic it's just cool that's an interesting change we didn't actually mention which is the fact that apophis well a mortibris isn't a thing anymore along with he's gone off on holiday with the guy from the ogres right they've just gone off on a little couple's holiday like a cruise but apophis is only available for eod now you can't get him in in undead and he was in my last undead army so that's kind of it. He was a super strong dragon, so he's only available to EOD, so that's kind of surprising. Okay, um, what's your favorite bit of fluff, and what's your favorite part about the book overall, he also asks. Well, my favorite bit of the fluff is the in-the-beginning part and detailing out the old gods. I thought that was really awesome. I, I think that's a great section for everybody to read. I really like the magic chart. Just that one page about magic, and kind of because I'm a magic nerd when it comes to the fantasy that's my favorite thing is the magic system and there was never really a system in kings of war right it was just a ranged attack so actually to try and delineate that a little bit more that really interests me and that's something i want to get deeper into and i'm hoping they kind of develop it more with the magic tiers i really like the new like the more developed and fleshed out maps i think that's a great mm-hmm. addition that's my favorite part as well it just really can... creates creates the world right that's what we're playing in so I think it just helps tie everything together a little more, like a good rug. I think for me, what I love most about uh, the book, and I'll give like a specific example, you know, I remember as a kid growing up in Warhammer, you'd open these books and you'd see all these pictures and stories, and you would have an emotional reaction to the world in which you're playing these games. Up to this point, I haven't had that as much with kings of war and part of that is because i'm like old and cynical and i you know work working man working for the weekend you know all that stuff but this book and looking through it uh i'm feeling that it's not nostalgia but i'm feeling that that spark of like wow this is cool or who lives here or you know the i mentioned them earlier the the picture of the dwarf hold or that picture of that elf city in the middle of water 
that where you the city's actually like damned and you go go down and 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 I'm feeling like these little sparks of imagination where I'm wondering like what's going on in the world and no longer is it oh here's a Kings of War book I'm gonna flip right to the the what's been changed in the units and instead. I'm like stopping to read about the magic and about the world and about, so that's probably what I love most about the book is the book itself, but also I'm loving the reaction that I'm having in viewing the the book and the, the excitement that I'm feeling. Mark Taylor asks a question I think we've already answered, which was which faction do we think has fundamentally changed the most? I think we said it's it's pretty much elves, unless anyone disagrees with me. Yeah, there it's them and, and also I think there's a lot of changes to Night Stalkers too. Just the way they play, I think it's gonna be more board control. So And they lost surge, like the and shambling, which is I think a big, huge change. Gad asks us around cool advances in the fluff. We've already covered that. Any units we think will be spammed? Silver Breeze. Silver Breeze. Over breeze. What do we think of Alohi in third edition? Lol, he says. You just can't build the all Alohi list anymore. They they're not necessarily going to replace cavalry regiments or like large cavalry regiments or hordes. They're just going to be a fast response force as opposed to something you're just going to throw out there. Yeah, you just have to redefine what you want out of them. And and when people say, well, they're unplayable, I think they're unplayable in the sort of role that they had previously and that the new role needs to be adapted. I think, uh, you know, I do agree with some of the pitchforking and the fact that as a horde, maybe it doesn't really do what you needed to do in that. But uh, I could still see its use as having one horde unit for board denial, board control, um, off by itself, self-inspires. Um, I think the real power of the Alohi, and it's something that I think has been covered, is that they're really, really great in regiments now. So I think we're going to see more use of them as in regiments. And then also, too, when it comes to it, you just never know. When stuff comes out, people say, oh, this sucks. Who can play with this? No one's going to ever play. And then six months later, you know everyone's going to be using it. Like when uh, Alona first came out in 2019, it was like, oh, teleport Alona, every single list in the world's going to use that mechanic. And then some people did, but in actuality, that mechanic, Alona's great, don't get me wrong, but the teleporting her behind enemy lines, that didn't really become as big a thing as everyone was convinced it would be. So I think some of this is just we're just going to have to have to wait and see. But in general, I think Alohi are just fine. If you have them based in regiments, then you're ahead of the game. And if you don't, then, I don't know, get a skill saw out and or just, you know, run them for fun. But we'll see. I don't think it's there's with anything. I think there's a core of truth in that, but it's probably not as big a deal as some people say. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Paul Van Eyck says, will Peter Jesus appear as a legendary model? If so, which faction? Obviously, the ogre bully. End of story. <laughs> the pie, the slice, the bite, amen. Other than for balance purposes, what kind of army list can no longer be made? Uh, so we talked about uh, that a little bit already, so I'm going to skip that one. Sorry, John. Mike Kodas says, what is the feel play style of each army, and have they changed it from the last edition? So we've kind of covered that, and it's worth saying we're going to go over that a lot more in our army updates. We're going to do snapshots of each of the third edition armies. Look out for those coming soon. Uh, Michael Gale asked about his top three favorite factions. We've covered that. And then it says, what clues to new armies have you read in the fluff? Minus Ophidians. Well, I think for me, if you look at the dwarf list, the omissions from the list, like Hernius, I think that's telling a lot what the free dwarf list is going to look like. Uh, Felix asks, how long until Dojo breaks the game? 
Um, and they're on the playtest, I think, for this, so they've probably already broken it. Kyle says, um, some people have been talking about a decrease in the amount of crushing strength overall. I'm not seeing it. Is there really less crushing strength? Which Jeff Swan, as part of the rules committee, already said yes, much less. And there definitely is. And actually, I think it's a very welcome change. It makes defense a real uh, bigger part of the game, right? Tom Annis asks, what's your favorite piece of art in the book? Map of Panathor. There's a lovely piece of Elohi art, Tom. You'll love it. It's uh, it's very pretty. Actually, no, it genuinely is. It's really nice. Steve Evans asks, will we be seeing lots more standard infantry regiments and hordes once third hits? Can't wait to get his new rule books. I think we've talked about that and said pretty much, yes, we hope so. More importantly, Mantic hopes so. Mark Cunningham asks, do you have brown or red sauce on a bacon sandwich? Uh, red sauce, obviously, Mark. Is it still good, neutral, evil, or has that been changed or expanded? I think that's just the same, right? Yep, absolutely the same. Are we happy or sad that War Machines got more consistent and less skewy? Happy. So in the past, there was only a couple War Machines you saw, and I think now all the War Machines have a use. And it's a use a use outside of just high risk, high reward. Do I hit you with my heavy mortars or do I miss? Now there's actually a little bit more tactical gameplay now. So Shannon Shoemaker asked a question I don't quite understand. Who will win the first world championship of Phalanx, Cavalry, Large Infantry? Which would you throw first, and are you any good at rock, paper, scissors? Well, I think that's what he's alluding to is like what we were talking about earlier, but phalanx, cavalry, large infantry, large infantry will still be effective against phalanx units, while cav will not. But cav will be effective against large infantry, kind of right. in a rock okay, paper scissors manner. Mm-hmm. I'm betting on large infantry because I have about six hordes of them right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting. So Jeffrey Swan, who last I checked was on the rules committee, said, why did the rules committee nerf only my army? That's the only way anyone ever has a chance to beat Jeffrey Swan because he's so good is if we nerf his armies. Per Jeffrey Swan. Per Jeffrey Swan. It's your own fault, and Jeff. Page Nero says, will Auras make MSU's armies very viable? Yeah, I yeah. mean, especially like an undead army that has a heal aura. I mean, you can get some of those going. You keep stuff alive. Um, that when you got armies that are coupled with regen, I think I think they're I think MSU will be very viable uh, in this in this edition, especially since. Infantry regiments are increased uh, unit strength now, especially the heavy infantry ones. Dan Zaremski says, why do you believe units were made less swingy? What effect do you think this will have on gameplay, especially with an influx of new players entering the fray, answering his own question? Variance is frustrating, right? Especially to newer players. Uh, So making things less swingy helps tone down variants which makes the game more fun for players who are first learning you think think of like the race they're a good example right they hit on fours but now they have and i know they only move seven now but they still fly um now they have the strider special rule so you know now sticking them you know into a unit on the charge that behind an obstacle you're gonna hit on fours and i think that's just you know it just makes it a a little easier to predict the outcome math hammer wins uh, Erasmus Berger asks, how long would it take to do faction reviews again? Will there be an episode going over the changes to the armies? So yes, we are going to do mini army reviews starting as soon as Jeremy can get his troops in order. And we'll have um, Basilean will be our first. The Basilean update will be the first one. And then we're just going to bam. We're going to go right through. We're going to invite a lot of former army list review personalities back onto the shows. So if you have any army specific questions you want addressed, once you guys get a handle on the book in our army review updates, put them on the countercharge Facebook page. And last but not least, Tyler Schultz says, why is the rules committee such an awesome group of underappreciated badasses? Is he trying well, to audition for a place? Or, I think, or? but like, is, is, I mean, if you ask 
Jeff, he's not underappreciated, is he? A legend in his own time. I think uh, the, the Rules Committee does take a lot of crap um, and a lot of complaints and whines, and sometimes they do feel underappreciated. I don't think they're underappreciated at all. We hugely appreciate the work mm-hmm. they put into our community. You know, And bear in mind, this uh, version 3 was a ginormous undertaking. There will be things that aren't 100% balanced, but they've committed to regular updates. They're on it. Um, they work really hard, and I certainly appreciate them. I, you know, I think as we wrap, wrap up the show and the other guys can kind of comment is I think it's important that we come back to this idea of the rules committee and that we um, give them our thanks and our gratitude. And even if there are little tiny missed errors or stuff that's not 100 percent balanced, these are people who have jobs in their in their normal lives and they devote their time and energy to do something um, for, uh, you know, besides store credit, like the, uh, essentially for free. Because they want our game to be the best, the best it can be, so we should always try to be acknowledging of that fact and make sure that they really do understand how thankful we are for what they do, and that, like Steve said, this is really this was a, a, a massive, massive work, an incredible step up in quality, and I just want to personally thank everyone on the rules committee. Absolutely, I think it's a big part of why Mantic is part of the community and not just imposing a community upon us or imposing a game on the community. Like it's truly a big, like they are part of our gaming society. Like they, they don't just create a game, they create a community. And I think the rules committee is like that bridge and what makes it possible. Yeah. A huge shout out to everyone on the rules committee. It's one of the reasons I didn't freak out about third edition at all, because I knew the people on the rules committee. I'm like, they got this. You know, I know Jeff went on the rules committee just to make sure third edition didn't get screwed up. So a big thank you for all of that. But uh, big tip of the hat. I know we don't send them money and stuff, but if you see them, you know, a pint here or there, I'm sure would be appreciated by the guys. So, hey, and when are we going to get an Australian on the rules committee? Oh, there you go. Somebody had to bring Rob on the podcast to stir up some controversy. (laughs) When they get better at the game, Rob, that's when. All right. Well, let's take a quick commercial break and the other side will come back and we will wrap up the show. I'm Adam Padley, the best UK master, and you're listening to Counter Charge. Welcome back to Counter Charge. And to wrap up the show, let's just share our overall impression of the book now that we've had a chance to talk about it. Mine is what I said at the top. It's very professional. I think it was exactly what I was hoping for. Steve, how about you? Yeah, I'm just really impressed with the quality of it. I'm genuinely excited to have a refresh of the game, a refresh of the meta. Uh, and yeah, let's just let's play it out and see how we go. I, I really like the overall look of it. And I think just the clarity of how they've approached the rules is just it keeps getting better. So it's like a simple rule set that's just gotten more clear and more logical, which I like. I think that, you know, uh, Mantic is entering its prime. I go back to my man, Tony Robbins, where he talks about visualizing and then realizing your visualization. I think that they visualize what they wanted with this product. And uh, the proof is in the pudding. They realize that. And we have a legitimate up and down awesome book to explore over the next few years. I'm really excited because it's almost like Christmas. So, you know, I'm trying to, like I said, recapture that excitement over first edition. I think this is going to do it. It's very, very exciting. And, you know, hey, tip of the hat to everybody. And I just said it, but tip of the hat to Mantic, to the Rules Committee, to Ronnie. And congratulations. And 
a big celebration for 10 years of Mantic Games. So I think this is just the cherry on the top of the giant Mantic Sunday. And congratulations to everyone over there at Mantic for 10 wonderful years. And thank you for giving us third edition. Okay, so thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, don't forget to remain engaging. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. One thing I will say, Rob, is they did add a a rule, ignore cover, which it it says, you know, when firing in high arcs, hitting a target from the top, you you sometimes won't suffer that minus one hit modifier. So they did some of the elements of indirect have just been broken off into another special rule like many of the other rules. Did you listen to what we just Did you just say that? Yeah, I actually just oh, okay. I just exact, like verbatim. Oh, I, that's all right. Then I'm I'm sorry. I was. That's all right. That's uh, all right. That's I right. was. Yeah, he's just going full <laughs> mark. He's just going full mark. I got mark distracted for a second. Sorry, that's, go ahead. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> so, anybody else want to chat in about the nimble change? <laughs>